welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California, and a massive Stephen Sondheim fan and very excited Steve, to talk about him and to talk about him with our two incredible guests. You know, we do this We do this whenever we lose a great artist. Yes. And Sondheim certainly qualifies as a great artist. And I'd say nine times out of ten, John, it's just been you and me. Yes. But frankly, I couldn't imagine talking about Stephen Sondheim without talking about two of my favorite guests we've ever had on The Cinephiles. Agreed. And people that it is a damn crime we haven't had back and that's entirely like we we talked about it over and over again you should have been back long before this david cornu and milena govich david is a composer and a writer he re- just finished doing a pilot directed by john chu who did crazy rich asians and in the heights and david wrote a pilot that was a big huge production on abc for it he's also a composer milena the list of things that i can say about her (laughs) career actor broadway actress musician director and currently a director of television working on shows like the equalizer chicago med fbi most wanted david milena welcome back to the cinephiles thank you for having us (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I, I just want to jump right in, with, particularly with your guys' expertise. I'm curious, how did you come to Stephen Sondheim? What's the first moment that you can remember being conscious of this person, Stephen Sondheim? That's a great question. I, I can almost say that my introduction to him was probably pre-conscious. Wow. <laughs> because uh, I am the fortunate child of two music professors. Hmm. My parents both uh, taught opera and musical theater singing in universities. They also had private voice students. So I grew up with voice lessons in my living room every day of my life. And for any of their light opera or musical theater students, the Sondheim canon was a staple. So I was hearing it from the time I have memory, basically. David, how about you? Well, mine is... Similar that there's a pre-conscious part of it. I, I first knew about Sondheim when I was maybe seven and I heard the West Side Story record that we kept in an ice box uh, uh, in our home, which I would take out and put on the record player and just listen to it over and over again. But I didn't really know Sondheim. I just knew West Side Story. When I went to college, I was actually a bit of a musical theater late bloomer. I went to college and that's when I really started to discover musicals. That was the deep dive into Sondheim, where I would pull his scores out of the music library and just analyze page after page of sheer brilliance. John, how about you? Yeah, for me, I think a little bit similar to David. I knew West Side Story because as a Latino growing up, this was a film that my parents, who are immigrants to this country, Latino immigrants to this country, loved because of how it highlighted the Latino experience, the immigrant Latino experience in this country. So whenever it came on, I would listen to it. We had the record and I listened, but I did not know that it was Sondheim, right? To me, it was just a musical and my parents played it and I liked the songs. It wasn't until I was a teenager uh, and then a little bit older where I discovered uh, that it was Sondheim, that I wasn't a musical theater person that much. And it wasn't until Michael Vogel, who has been a guest of ours many times, um, played me the Into the Woods soundtrack when I was in college with him at Florida State University. And I would go over to his house and his apartment 
purposefully so I could sit there for an hour and keep listening to the CD of that. And that was my entry point into Sondheim. My mind had been opened up to the possibility of a new form of musical theater, this um, kind of approach to uh, speaking about your feelings and emotions in a way that it wasn't necessarily grandiose. It was more kind of nuts and bolts and, and, and really in the gut. And I felt that through his lyrics and through his words. And that turned me around and into the woods as a transition time coming out of the military into uh, Florida State to pursue being an actor. So that just really spoke to me. And then I saw Sweeney Todd and that was it. I mean, Sweeney Todd was the one that solidified and I went and consumed everything Sondheim after that and have thoroughly loved him ever since. So for me, this is a story that I never thought I would have the chance to tell on the cinephiles. John, like you and David, I definitely I'd heard some West Side Story. I don't think I actually watched West Side Story until later. But something I have mentioned on the show before is that when I was a kid, my parents got season tickets to the local, you know, to the national tours of the big musical shows. And this is like 1979, 1980. And at that time, I saw Yul Brenner and the King and I. I God. saw Richard wow. Burton and Camelot. Nice. I saw. Oh I saw Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. This is, uh, wow. you know, like this was the last of the that their big tour. And the other tour I saw show I saw at the age of eleven years old was Sweeney Todd mm. with the original with Len Carreyou and Angela Lansbury. Oh, oh. Um, oh Molly, lucky dog. My parents took me. They didn't know what the show was. Wow. I was eleven. Their description <laughs> of me was that the show ended. And I was pale white, um, <laughs> and they and, and they were really worried. And I was like, "That was the greatest thing I've ever seen in my entire life." And I can remember going to Del Mar School, junior high, and telling everyone who would listen about this amazing thing that I had seen. I didn't know the name Stephen Sondheim. I didn't know anything other than that I had been watching My Fair Lady and Camelot and all these other things. And then Sweeney Todd comes along, and I literally, I swear to God. You know, it's now 42 years ago. I can picture that set. I can picture moments of the show absolutely perfectly. Yeah. You know, if, if we can redo the Beatles Let be Let It Be documentary and, and really kind of make it come to life in 4K, can we go and do that Sweeney for the Sweeney Todd for Sunday in the Park with George with all these filmed productions that are only available in 4x3 VHS? Can we hire people to go and do this? I would love to see those original versions. Producers, are you hearing John right now? That is <laughs> yeah, a great please. idea. Please do that. Uh, I love it. So, so here's my question. You know, we're 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 doing an intro for West Side Story, obviously one of the great musicals of all time, and there are great a whole bunch of great artists that work on it. But why are we talking about Sondheim? Why was he important? What did he mean to the world of musical theater? And and what did he mean as an artist? Well, his work was groundbreaking in so many ways. I can tell from a more personal standpoint as a singer and as a Broadway actor and, and performer who's had the pleasure of, of performing some of his work, the marriage between music and lyrics is so organic mm. and so poignant and so insightful that it, it resonates in a way unlike anything else. In, in our musical world, we call it prosody, the mm. way the lyrics fall within a melody the, the way certain words land on certain notes or within certain phrases. Uh, he had such a beautiful marriage of those things. And as a performer, when 
uh, some of the first Sondheim songs I ever sang because of that marriage of music and lyrics, they became so much more actable. Mm -hmm. So the moment of the music, the moment that's being musicalized, I mean, we all know musical theater, the people bust out of the song because they can't not sing, right? That's the hope. (laughs) When that moment comes where the character has to sing, it's easy to bridge the gap between dialogue and song Mm -hmm. because it all flows together. It all comes as one. And not only is it joyous for the performer to do that, uh, the audience experiences it in that way as well. And so a lot of Sondheim, like Sweeney Todd or um, A Little Night Music, there's so much uh, through sung elements. You know, you're moving in and out of song and it's not necessarily like you're traditional musical theater show where yes now the song's over and everybody claps for two minutes and now we go into the next thing there's a lot more in and out which gives a very organic flow to um to the entire experience and in fact that sort of flow that he does on stage is cinematic in nature Mm -hmm. you know and i think that's that's part of what's so beautiful about sondheim the the fluidity of his scores how he comes in and out of song and you know, people who are fans of the cinephiles were all fans of great storytelling. Mm. Sondheim was a fantastic storyteller, um, and it transcends the medium. I think that, you know, he did reinvent musical theater, but, I mean, I write mostly TV and film scripts now, mm-hmm. uh, coming from a, a classical music background and being a trained composer, but I still constantly think about Sondheim in how I approach my own material. He had four philosophies, four guiding principles when it came to writing music and lyrics. It was content dictates form, less is more, God is in the details, and all in the service of clarity. And I think about those principles all the time. And when you look at any great story, they abide by those principles as well. I've never heard that before, David. That is just so great. John, John, what can you tell me about, you know, your relationship with Sondheim and how you feel that he changed musical theater? Look, I can't sing like Milena can sing. I can't compose like David can compose. I'm just a fan. And I'm a, you know, I'm a son of immigrants, an army uh, guy, and uh, just a, you know, at times a knuckle dragger. But I I know that musical theater and the creative element within me has ha, ha, could not find you know past the MGM musicals I really didn't go into musical theater right anything goes the Cole Porter stuff uh, you know that all that stuff it was okay it was fine but it wasn't so, until Sondheim and as David points out the stories within the songs you know Company is I think now my number one musical for Sondheim I just bought the Criterion the other day of the documentary of the original cast with Dean Jones and all them but. Hearing Elaine Stritch do Here's to the Ladies Who Lunch and her version of it, the she is fully entrenched in this scenario and cinematic world, as David, that she's creating within the song. And she's telling you so much. And you compare that to Joanna Gleason into the woods when she's talking about the prince. And then she, then she meets the prince and has that dance with the prince. And he goes, and, and once the prince leaves her, he's oh, the giant. And he leaves and she goes, what was that? And she has this whole conversation with herself that feels so authentic and real. 
And it gives you a whole new perspective into two different women at different parts of their lives and what they're talking about. And as a dude, I'm understanding a woman's point of view so well through watching these uh, uh, songs. And so for me, it was about more than just telling the story. It was also talking about the human condition of a man and a woman as they're negotiating what they're negotiating within his musicals. Um, and nothing being alive. I sing being alive at the top of my lungs in my song, in my car, the rule, the rule Esparza version all the time when I'm by <laughs> myself, by the way, I don't put my girlfriend through that. Like there is so much in that song about being afraid to love. And then by the end, he is so desperate to embrace it. How many of us are so afraid to love because we're afraid to get hurt or because we don't want to go out on that limb and have it be sought out from under us? And he captured that all in the journey of the song. And that's why I love Sondheim so much. And I think only Jason Robert Brown, for me, has ever come close to matching what Sondheim can do in his lyrics and I say that as, you know, kind of an, uh, I'm a musical theater person, but not like a knowledgeable, knowledgeable musical theater person. So if I've offended anybody, I just want to make that clear. That's the limits of my knowledge. So, so for me, I, it's, it, there's so much there that you can dig into. It's mm-hmm. like if you listen to a classical musical theater song, and they're great, great songs, you know, you listen to, you know, an, oh, it's a song from My Fair Lady or Oklahoma or one of these mm-hmm. shows. Pretty much from the first verse, you know what the song is telling you. Right. And then the subsequent verses and choruses are going to reinforce, I am in love with this person. I want to have this. Mm-hmm. I, whereas Sondheim, every time you listen to it, you go, oh, there's, so, there's more going on. Oh, there's a journey. Oh, they're, they're not trying not to express this emotion and this other thing is coming out. And then they're resisting that and they're surprised that this ha- And there's all this actor beat work that's going on. And, and, you know, I could listen to Company, I could listen to Sunday over and over and over again. And every time I every time I hear a new thing yeah. that I didn't think of before. Yeah, that portrayal is it's on the money. And it's so interesting that, you know, his mentor, at least from the lyricist standpoint, was Oscar Hammerstein, mm-hmm. who is known for the kind of musical you're describing. Yeah. Steve, where, you know, um, and often in the early days when Sondheim was still kind of making his his way, he would put that aside, say, the, the Hammerstein, it's the old school way of doing things. I don't really want to do it. But it's interesting. Um, my friend, he's he's one of my dear dearest friends, uh, Sam Holtzapple, who's an extraordinary lyricist. He's mm. been a collaborator of mine many times. He sent me, I'm pulling this up, um, this article that was written last week by Jeremy Sams, who was a friend of Sondheim's. And here to conclude is a wonderfully life-affirming lyric, complete with trademark internal rhyme from his perforce unfinished musical based on the films of Bunuel. And the piece is still on Steve's piano in the bright and airy Connecticut house where he lived a few days ago where he died. And the lyric is, if it isn't the sun, it's the bird song. If it isn't the air, it's the view. I'm completely undone by the endless abundance of life aren't you? And that is so Hammerstein, you know? So it's kind of a full circle um, coming back to something. If that's the final lyric he ever wrote, I mean, it's poetry upon poetry. It's pretty amazing. I I know that he's been a tremendous influence on all sorts of artists. Um, And and I'm wondering, David, if you have, like, how has he influenced you? Do you have a, does he influence you in a personal way? 
Oh, very much so. Uh, <laughs> I have a crazy story about Sondheim, actually. I have a few of them. But um, <laughs> after graduating from a music conservatory, I decided to drive around the country in my car because, you know, I wanted to take a super practical approach to my 20s. Yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> um, anyhow, I, I sent my college musical to Sondheim and I asked if I could study with him. You know, big swing. Wow. <laughs> Uh, the naivety of youth on my side, I think. And so to my great surprise, he wrote back and said he enjoyed the songs, said I'm quite talented as a composer lyricist, but he doesn't really teach. So then I wrote back. Hold, hold on, hold on. That's amazing. Can we just pause for a moment? <laughs> yeah. That's um, that's a, a that's just amazing that Sondheim did it. And yeah. B, it's amazing. Dude, Sondheim well, liked your I musical. Thought, I thought this was the biggest outlier in the world. Later, I would learn he writes yeah. to absolutely every single one of his fans. And, and wow. that was one of the greatest things about Sondheim. He is he was just so generous, just a generous spirit, so kind, so um, supportive of new talent. Uh, you know, Tick, Tick, Boom recently. Yeah. Kind of depicts him, which was, you know, beautiful. I don't know if you guys have seen that yet, but I haven't yet. Brad, Bradley Bradley Whitford yeah. really did a great job embodying Stephen Sondheim. And I won't spoil it for those who haven't seen it yet, but you actually hear Sondheim's voice in one of the key scenes in it, mm. which is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, I uh wrote back to him again, thanked him, of course, and said, Are you sure? <laughs> so I mean, <laughs> I basically doubled down. I was like, no, no, you really should teach me. Like I, I'm, I'm the one who, who deserves to study with you. And, and, uh, you know, figured I got my foot in the door. Why not kick it down? And he was still so gracious. He wrote back again and said, David, you know, my best advice is for you to move to New York city. So at the time, I think I was sleeping in my car in Mississippi. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to New York. And I drove home and moved to New York right after that it was because of Sondheim, because of that letter. Wow. And that's where I met this lovely lady. I was night, just going to say, just gonna say yeah. that as well. Yeah. <laughs> met this lovely lady on the subway one night in a roundabout <laughs> way. Thank you, Sondheim. I'm married to Melina. <laughs> oh, man. that That's just amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I've said this to... Uh, off mic to David and Melena, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say it on mic now because I really want to make this happen. This conversation is too short. I have, <laughs> I have so much more I want to talk to you about Sondheim, and so I am determined, and I know John is with me that we're going yep. to make a a long full cinephiles episode to discuss the life and work of Stephen Sondheim. It's a, it's a, it's a departure. Be careful, Steve. It's going to be 14 hours long. I don't <laughs> care. I don't even more. So who, who, who are you talking to? <laughs> I, mean, I could spend, I could spend a whole episode on a single song oh and there are God. hundreds of those I could choose. I would love that idea. I, I, I love that. Idea. Me too. I mean, it's like the, and the thing is, is, Sondheim is one of the most important artists in my life, and we're not going to really get to talk about him on the cinephiles that much mm. because he's not, you know, he did, did some work that appeared in films, but not that much, mm -hmm. you know, whereas, to, and so I, I, I want to make this happen. Maybe it'll be, you know, part of regular cinephiles episode. Maybe it'll be its own thing, but I want to make the converse, this conversation happen with the four of us. Mm. We've already had one conversation about what is without question, the greatest piece of film that we've seen his work in. And mm. by the way, I just looked it up when the four of us talked about West side story. It was February of 2017. Wow. It was, what? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
Oh, so time is so confusing. I know it's particularly <laughs> post pandemic. Yeah, so throw a pandemic in there. That's that. That's very confusing. How long? <laughs> it so uh, so, I, and I'm just curious, like how you know it's it's been a few more years. Like how do you, have your feelings about West Side Story evolved or changed? It's still my favorite movie of all time. Who knows? Maybe it'll be one up to this weekend when Melaine and I see it. We're actually going to New York on Thursday. Oh, and Melaine wow. um, actually doesn't know this until right now. We have tickets <laughs> at the IMAX theater on Friday night, eight o'clock. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Good job, husband. Well yeah. done. Yeah, so we are we are going to see it. But no, I mean, it's one of those things where if you want to just see what art looks like when you put three geniuses in a room together, go watch West Side Story. And now with Spielberg, maybe four geniuses. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of which, John, you've seen it. I have. Uh, yes. And I tell you what, I know you're pitching for us. I would love us to get back together and talk about both of those movies in a comparison way, mm. uh, considering the fact that we broke West Side Story down to its nook and crannies <laughs> in our conversation. And now maybe we could do the same because I tell you this, it's not the remake of the movie, and yet it is, which I think is brilliant in both Spielberg's approach. Let me add a fifth genius, Tony Kushner, involved yes. in writing the lyrics and adjusting. And it's a, it's a, all I can say is it's a completely different approach that finally highlights my people even more in the process, and that was so surprising. So I would love us to get back together and talk about it. It is right now my best picture of the year. Uh, oh, that's I, so exciting. And I couldn't believe it because well, I did not go in expecting Also, that. I just have to say, yeah. it better be the best picture of the year. <laughs> <laughs> if you are going to reconceive or remake yeah. or re-anything to that beautiful, perfect film, it better be glorious. That's all I got to say. It's been very funny to see Milena when it was announced. I was the one who was hopeful and excited. And she's like, no. I was mad about it. doing this. And I would go look up Rachel Zegler online, listen to her sing. I watched yeah. the high school musical like version of her singing West Side Story. And I'm like, she's got a great voice. Yes, we she does. Finally, gonna Maria like, really can bring it. Mm-hmm. And Milena's like, I'm not sure. I don't know. And then the trailer came out. And she didn't want to see it. I'm like, girl, sit down and watch this with me. So I've been known been, to be stubborn. Let's just leave it at that. She's well, been pretty reticent because it's <laughs> our favorite movie and musical of all time. Well, I, I think if we can make it happen, uh, this is pending my partner's approval, of course. I think we just said what our next live show is going to be. <laughs> I'm down. I'm down if they have time. If Heck you guys yeah. are all up for coming on camera and do because we do a live YouTube show once a month. Actually, our next one is Rocky Four, and we're doing the same thing. We're going to compare the original to the <gasps> yeah. Stallone remake. Oh, that's a different oh, that's kind great. of film from West Side Story. But maybe you know, maybe sometime in the new year, we'll figure a way to get you guys on the books to come on to YouTube and really dig into these two productions. I would oh, absolutely love that. Yeah, that sounds fun. Uh, okay, so without further ado, we are going to go back to February of 2017 and go back to the streets of New York to watch the Sharks and the Jets one more time for my partner, John Roca. I am Steve Morris. Thank you so much, David and Melena, for coming back. And we now give you West Side Story.
welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, explore its themes, its history, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey, everybody. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, host of numerous shows, and occasional actor here in Los Angeles. You were laughing at me. No, in a good way, because you're so excited for this new experiment, because we have four mics, two different H4Ns and one H5N, or one H4N, one H5N, so there's a lot here, and I'm looking forward to seeing you do it all. No, there's a lot There's a lot going on right now, because for the first time on The Cinephiles, yeah. we have not one, but two guests. Uh, David Cornu and Milena Govich are incredibly lucky to have them here. David Cornu is a composer who's worked in the theater and has worked in television, is currently developing a Stephen King project for the VR space of the of the book Insomnia. David, wake up, welcome to the Cinephiles. Why, thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. And we're also lucky to have Milena Govich, who is a musical theater actress who started on Broadway, worked in television. You might have seen her in Law & Order, Rescue Me, in Finding Carter. Uh, Milena, welcome to the Cinephiles. Thank you so much, Steve. <laughs> but we're so lucky to have you, in particular, because today we are doing West Side Story, and I know both of you have a special connection to this musical. Absolutely, we do. It may be our favorite film of all time, mm. collectively. Both to the musical and to the film? Yes. Yes. Yes, it's, it's a desert island film for us. So, so let me ask you, how did you first come to this musical? Well, I remember very, very clearly when I first saw it, but my parents are both music professors. So uh, there were voice lessons happening in my living room every day of my childhood. So wow. I grew up with this music. I could sing tonight by the time I was four years old and what, what was that like growing up with music professors in your house loud <laughs> <laughs> uh no it was fantastic um i had there were college students coming in and out all the time and those were all my friends i i thought i was the coolest kid around you know <laughs> and, and did you always want to be a musician or a singer i have always loved the arts and i've always sung and i've I play instruments and I dance and I've done that since I was tiny. Uh, my big rebellion was in college. I was a pre-med major. <laughs> so, <laughs> how, long did, how long did that last? I, it, I got my degree. Wow. Uh, so yeah, I actually have a bachelor's of science uh, in pre-med. Have you ever considered falling back to medical school? Well, I did at the time, but I, I couldn't get this, <laughs> uh, this New York bug out of me. Hmm. So I decided I was applying to medical schools and I decided, wow, if I go to medical school, I can't do a show at night. I can't be in the orchestra. My voice is going to be crap because I'm never going to sleep. So I just wasn't willing to walk away from everything. So instead I moved to New York. It's so funny. I had, I had <laughs> such a similar experience because I didn't have prof music professors in growing up with them, but I didn't have that experience, but I did have doing theater all through childhood. And in high school I went, I was going to be an actor. And then I saw the really good actors in high school and I went, Oh, I can't do that. So, <laughs> so somewhere at the end of high school, I said, I'm going to be responsible and I'm going to become a lawyer or a, I wanted to go into politics for a long time. And I said, I'm going to be a poli sci major. So I went to Berkeley. I'm studying political science. But, well, maybe I'll do a play on the side and maybe I'll do another play. And yeah. Maybe I'll do some more theater. Well, I've taken half the theater classes. I guess I'll be a double major. And by the end of it, I was barely going to my political science <laughs> classes and I was really going to my theater classes all the time. <laughs> so I had a really similar experience. Yeah. Uh, and so you went to New York. Yep. I um, was a total cliche because I'm from Oklahoma. I took a one-way ticket, two wow. suitcases, violin on my back, went to the big city. <laughs> and had you, had you been there before? Did you have New York experience? 
not really. The first time I ever visited New York was only a year before that. Oh, wow. um, I went and visited for 13 days. I saw 17 shows. I went to auditions. It was my uh, my research reconnaissance trip. <laughs> <laughs> I went there going, all right, I got to decide if I want to live here or not. So I did everything I could to experience New York to its fullest. And I loved it the second I got there. Really? I still do. Yeah. Didn't have any like major culture shock? No. You were no. just like, this is for me. I, the thing I said, I stayed with my aunt who was living there at the time. And I said to her, wow, I'm finally in a city that moves at my pace. Huh. Wow. wow. Yeah. So Oklahoma must have seemed a little slow. A little bit, yeah. A little bit. <laughs> David, what about you? How did you become involved in, were you always a musician? musician? I was a, a songwriter from day one. Uh, you came out of the womb Tapping your toe in three, four times. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. As far back as I can remember, I was writing songs. I wrote songs for my mother while she cooked dinner for us at night. I'd go wow. over to the piano and, and she'd say, what, what are you going to play for me tonight? And I would write her a song. I discovered West Side Story maybe, well, it had to be around puberty because I remember... Uh, watching all those girls up on stage saying, I got to get me one of those. <laughs> and, and I did. And, uh, well done. Yeah. Good, good work there. Nice. Uh, and then I really dove into West Side Story in college. I, I went uh, and got a classical music composition degree in college, really practical degree. Sure. And I remember watching the film again and just falling in love with it all over and I actually took the entire score of West Side Story and transcribed it in college, note wow. for note, to feel what it feels like to be Leonard Bernstein writing those songs. He's wow. also a huge nerd. I was going to say, that is a majorly nerdy thing to do. <laughs> it's one of, I, it was one of the best composition lessons of my life. Just writing down every single note. Writing down those notes and thinking about how he structured those songs, structured those melodies, uh, the harmonic and rhythmic complexity that he put underneath it uh and yeah it was one of the best things i ever did it, wow. it, it's such a unique score how, how i mean just listening to it it doesn't sound like anything else and, and i love musical theater so for me my parents uh their big record collection was uh folk music like kingston trio and the limelighters and peter paul and mary and stuff like that and musicals and so the records I listened to over and over again when I was seven, eight, nine, ten were Camelot and The King and I and all of those classic old musicals and Guys and Dolls. And they took me to they had season tickets to the touring company in San Francisco at the Golden Gate Theater. So when I was nine or ten, all these musicals came through and they were just at the time where the real people were still doing them. So I saw Yul Brynner and the King and I, wow. uh, I saw uh, Rex Harrison in my fair lady. I saw Dick Van Dyke in uh, music man, which isn't quite the original, but was still pretty cool. And, uh, and I saw uh, Sweeney Todd when mm. I was 11. Now I don't know who was in it at this point because I, those names, Angela Lansbury, they didn't really mean anything to me, but I was 11 years old and Sweeney Todd was the, I don't think my parents knew what they were, getting me into and it was like the greatest and the most terrible theater experience I'd ever had in my life I think they, I was told I was pale at the end of it <laughs> but then for weeks I couldn't stop talking about it and of course I got made my parents buy the record and I'm listening to Sweeney Todd and I remember listening to West Side Story and West Side Story being like nothing else it doesn't sound like anything else that's in the musical theater to this day I think it is a one of a kind score and it's because of a fusion of 
classical music, um, 20th century music, opera, and jazz. And then you have the Latin American flair. Yeah. Uh, it's really just that, that fusion and the energy of all of those different things working together. F- uh, there's a fugue in the middle of cool. Who does a fugue? Not only is it a fugue, it's a 12-tone fugue, which is uh, a technique used by 20th century composers. And he does it effortlessly. John, how did you first come to West Side Story? <laughs> uh, I went into it as a kid. Uh, my parents, you know, uh, my parents are uh, first, uh, well, I'm first generation American. My parents are Bolivian. So for us, anything that was Latino based, even though at the time I didn't know it was Natalie Wood, I didn't know, like, I didn't know this as a child. To me, these were all Latinos dancing and singing in Puerto Rico. Like, all of that was just so great to experience. So for me, it was always appointment viewing because a lot of people don't remember back then, you, you couldn't just pick it up and watch it on YouTube. You couldn't just order it or buy it or whatever. Like you had to wait till it showed on television. So it was either on PBS or one of the, like the Sunday night movie or something. And I remember we would watch it as a family. And it was something that I, it awoke a desire and a love of musical theater for me or musicals period as a movie, uh, as a movie genre. And, and from there forward, like just seeing when you see that as your first one, it kind of opens your mind. Do you think up. it was your first musical? Yeah, I really believe it was. And then after that, it was singing in the rain, all the Gene Kelly ones. Like I'm a massive Gene Kelly fan. So to me, me it's, to me, it's this, this is the one that opened up the door because I saw the potential of, because it's an, it, it transcends the genre. It elevates the genre. Like every, every genre has one film that like elevates it. And I think West Side Story is the one. The fact that it's based in Shakespeare, the fact that you have the four-part harmonies going on on tonight, you have all this stuff going on, and then you have this real stuff where best friends are getting killed and this love, and it's and the death, and her reaction to the death. Like, all of it was what I grew up around. You know, poor, poor Latinos, those kinds of things. You saw that anger, you saw that, the vibrancy, and, and there's such a joy in the, in the music as well, along with pain. You know, there's this all this juxtaposition, and these romantic moments that like the fog, or the haze, rather, when he sees Maria for the first time, Tony sees Maria, there's just, there's no one else in the world, right? So all those, the, the romantic that I am from birth uh, was so in love with this film because it just conveyed all of that. Do you, do you remember how your parents reacted to it? Uh, yes, my mom absolutely loved the film, and my dad was always like skipping and my dad's like the old school latino macho all that kind of stuff so if any film got through to him that he would sing the songs or play around with the songs it always resonated with me because it was we were so different because i was a sensitive kid who was into arts and my dad was very much not of sports and soccer and all that stuff so when anything that would ever cross over for me it was uh, or for him, it was so resonant with me. Like Amadeus, he, that's his favorite film, bar none. And we're talking about a guy from a small town in Bolivia who worked on farms, loving this music, this film about a comp- composer in Austria. This is He loved West Side Story for the grittiness of it and also for the way it elevated this idea of, because he lived during that time, this idea of the Latinos versus the whites and the, and the, and the gangs and all that kind of stuff, you know? Well, that's, it's funny. I mean, I definitely want to talk about the the Latino experience in terms mm. of this film, but it's interesting to me that we have Amadeus and West Side Story. It's mm. like, here are these two movies. They're both very theatrical. They both have a huge connection to music. Yeah. They both have a tremendous artistic sensibility, and these are your movies that your dad really connected yeah, it's to. It's mind-blowing to me. And yeah. he also loved Hamlet, the Brana Hamlet. He was a mad fan for the Brana wow. Hamlet. He took him to see it at the Uptown in D.C., and he stayed awake. See, the thing is, as my dad got older, if he fell asleep during a movie... It's not a good movie. You didn't like it. And but with he's, he stayed awake through all four hours of Branagh's Hamlet. Wow. And it was I was amazed by this. So 
my dad, I think, was always an artist who didn't know it, and he just, but he would enjoy these things. But it was always selective ones, so that meant that meant to me they were worth praise. They were worth uh, they were worthy film. So speaking of Shakespeare, where we got to start is we have to start this with Romeo and Juliet. So this is and where uh, this idea begins. No, no, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Okay. When did you first see the film? We haven't. You talked about the score. You talked about listening to music. When did the film? When did you see the film? I think I saw it on TV, just okay. the same way as you did in yeah. high school, and I remember. I believe I. I had read Romeo and Juliet before I saw, okay. so I kind of knew, you know, what this was about. But you know, maybe I'd read Romeo and Juliet in junior high, something like that. It's kind of hard to process the language. Sure. I knew what the story was, but then I think the emotional reaction I didn't have in reading Romeo and Juliet, I had the first time I saw West Side Story. Yeah, because it is brutal. Yeah, I mean the 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 end of West Side Story is so tough. Uh, and, and having just watched it again, just as tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it, it hung with me in a way much more than Hamlet did, or much more than Romeo and Juliet did. It took me a while to sort of become a good enough reader of Shakespeare mm-hmm. to really appreciate Romeo and Juliet the same way. Because they both don't die. They both don't die. Right. Like that would in Romeo and Juliet. She stays alive, and that reaction is so visceral, man. It's so pure. Yeah, well, we're, we're going to definitely get into that when we get to the ending. Um, I actually didn't see the movie until I was probably 14. Mm. Oh, wow. I knew all the songs. I knew the score. Right. But I'd never seen the, the film. Mm. And I had similar reaction. I just bawled. And I still do. We watched, we rewatched the movie as well. And mm. I just cried like a baby. Yeah, we watched <laughs> it earlier this week. And it was like the first time we'd ever seen mm. it. We both had the same reaction at the end of the, of the film. Mm. It is so powerful. It is so moving. So I want to give a little bit of history of the film. But I also am pretty darn sure you guys know much more about this than me. So I'm going to start. But please feel free to, to jump in. Uh, my understanding is the, the idea, the original idea uh, came from Leonard Bernstein, and he wanted to do Romeo and Juliet, and it was going to be Catholics and Jews. That, that, mm. that was actually Jerome, Jerome Robbins. Robbins came oh, Jerome up, Robbins came up with the yeah. original idea. And he approached this Leonard Bernstein uh, because they had worked on Fancy Free on the town right. and thought he would be a great composer for it. And yes, it was, supposed to, it was called East Side Story. And it was going to be Catholics and Jews, um, huh. and Tony, Tony was was going to be the Catholic, and Maria was um, a Jewish girl who had survived the Holocaust and wow. had made it to America. And uh, eventually, they they shelved the project for a number of years. I think it was in the late forties when they were oh, first, that early first talking about oh, it. Oh wow! And then uh, approached it years later. And said, we want to move it to the West Side and let's give it more of uh, the, the, the Latino angle. And that was in the news at the time. So right. uh, it seemed more current and they could do more with the music. And it went from there. But yes, I think some of the songs, I believe Maria was one of the first songs written. And it was written for East Side Story. And I think One Hand, One Heart. And One Hand, One Heart. also written for East Side Story. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And do you know, and was, was Arthur Lorenz brought in next? Yeah, they... Um, so Arthur Lorenz wrote the book, so he sort of 
like the playwright essentially. Yeah, they the one of the really interesting things about West Side Story is that it was developed really as a team. Um, it's often uh, these days in a development process, there's one person that has the idea. You know, the maybe the the composer lyricist gets with the book writer, they write it, they make their thing, then they're going to find a choreographer, then they're going to find a director. But this is one of those um, really special projects where all the elements were together from the beginning, mm. and it was a true collaboration as they were discovering the story and discovering the tone that they wanted to hit and um, the way way the characters were going to interact and the way the music was going to support it. I actually reference this a lot. I reference this as the way to write a musical because you had the entire team there from day one to say, what is our collective vision? So much these days, it's a couple of writers go off, work on a show for years and years, and then they take it to a producer and the producer says, well, that's good guys, but let's do this instead. And what you end up getting is people adding on their vision to something, but there's not this unified vision. And that's one of the great reasons why the the genesis of West Side Story brought us such a powerful, uh, unified idea. Hmm. Well, and you have four guys, or at least three of the four guys, who go on to be or are great geniuses in their own right. You know, and so you have... Leonard Bernstein, you have, uh, wait, is it Bernstein or Bernstein? Either, Bernstein. but most people say Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Okay. You got Lenny. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. You've got, you've got uh, Jerome Robbins, the great choreographers of all time. You have Stephen Sondheim, who goes on to be one of the great musical theater people of all time. And you have Arthur Lorenz, who has an incredible career, maybe not quite as big as the other ones. And so you have titans, and you would expect these are exactly the kinds of guys who wouldn't be able to collaborate together. And yet the opposite is true. They seem to make each other better. Well, and you also have Hal Prince, their right. Hal Prince. Prince. producer. Who, yeah, let's add another one. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I've, I don't know if you guys have found this in your career, but often I find in my career, some of the most talented and the best people to work with are not driven by ego. That's not to say there weren't egos there. <laughs> Jerome Robbins. Yeah. <laughs> there were <laughs> bananas egos. But, but I think the the piece itself was so important to Mm -hmm. all of these people that they were really invested in telling the story. And, um, you know, they had their disagreements, but at the end they were all driving to tell this story. And I think that's how you ended up with such a great collaboration. They also were all so visionary in their own right, but they balanced one another, uh, the talents of each other in a, in a really surprising way. So Sondheim thought that, um, Bernstein's music and lyrics sometimes were too, quote, purple. And so... But what does that mean? So yeah. basically he thought, you know, Bernstein, Bernstein actually wrote some of the lyrics. He was supposed to get a co-lyric credit with Sondheim. Mm. Um, and finally said, hey, kid, you can have the credit for that. And Sondheim was like, I don't know if I want the credit with that, with, with some of your lyrics in there. Mm. Um, because, you know, suns and moons and stars and everything, that's right. all Bernstein. And right. Sondheim brought in um, that each one of these songs, each one of these lyrics is coming from a place of character. And it was so specific and it gave it edge. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of the two of them balancing each other out because we actually like the suns and moons and stars in, right. in that thing. And same thing with the music. So uh, Bernstein's music was sometimes too, quote, operatic to people. And Jerome Robbins would say, bring it in. We need to make this more current. Mm-hmm. We need to work on, you know, the Latino flair of this thing. Let's really bring that in. So he wanted the dance component to it. So 
everyone pushing against each other's talents made for a greater piece of art. Well, and this, I have this, this experience is true for me too, because not to compare myself in any way, but I do my best work when I'm pushed and I, I don't always like being pushed. Being pushed is not pleasant. This I is like true. It. This is true. Yeah. I like it when people say everything you've done is amazing. And I go, <laughs> good. That's exactly why I did it. And yet my work gets better when someone <laughs> criticizes it and, and pushes it and pushes yeah. it and I get angry and frustrated and then I stay up all night and I make it better. Well, the corollary to that is when you're working with incredibly talented people, mm -hmm. you want to rise to their level. Absolutely. You know, and I, I think that is also happening. If, you, if you're on this team and Leonard Bernstein br brings in this, this new piece of music or this new dance arrangement and you're right. Jerome Robbins, it's like you want to perform to that level and right. vice versa. And you got to look at this time in history, right? This is a transition period, not not just in acting styles, but in the country, right? So we're getting more, we're wanting to learn more about the character stuff. We're wanting to learn, we're gravitating to more of the inner workings of a human being as we watch stuff on film. So you're seeing this transition from old school Hollywood or old school musical theater into something a little more smaller, a little more specific, a little more grounded, grittier. So logically, Bernstein and uh, Sondheim are going to smash it because Sondheim doesn't write anything close to this going forward his stuff is more it's deeper it's darker like you said Sweeney Todd that affects you because it's a darker more specific more specific type of 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 musical and so what you see here is that but that that causes both of them to learn from each other I'm sure and and, co and come even closer to what they're trying to do separately as visionary and then together create like you said a dream team right like what you yeah. see in like in 1992 where they had the dream team they all had to kind of acquiesce to each other so that the ones so that they all could shine together as a team and you see the results of it here in the movie well one of the interesting things I was thinking about just as I was doing research was you got the uh, these four guys or five with Hal Prince is Hal Prince Jewish by the way Yes. <laughs> so we have so we have five Jews who write this quintessential yes Latino yes Irish Polish <laughs> immigrant and it's extremely masculine violent story mm -hmm. and I don't know about how Prince but three of the four guys were gay closeted gay mm -hmm. at the time mm -hmm. uh, Jerome Robbins is bisexual is my understanding or maybe that not that would have been the term at the time <laughs> or right. maybe not well and Leonard it, Bernstein. Yeah. Oh, he, okay. he, was, he, was well, he was married. I know he was yeah. married yeah. to have kids. Yeah. Um, uh, so you have these guys who are like really not who who this is not their life experience, and yet they write this amazing thing, which is one of those. There's always this this thing you say to writers, which is, "Oh, you got to write what you know." And I do think you have to write what you know, but I also think the creative process is you can write about things that aren't your experience and do it great, uh, and they create a really magical. It's not a realistic world. But it's a really magical world they create in this film. Well, the story that they're telling is so universal. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're still dealing with it today, well, unfortunately. That's what I was thinking when I was watching it. So, yeah, yeah it is an unfortunate resonance at this point in time. But, um, yeah. you know, that's what I really believe as an actor, because I'm handed material all the time to say, okay, make this work. And, you know, it's an alien battling, who, you know, whatever. You, you've got these bizarre circumstances, but what's the truth of the story? Hmm. And these, uh, this dream team of, of creators are so in tune to themselves and to their art and to their passions. And so you give them relationships and regardless of the specifics of the circumstance, we all know what those relationships are. We yeah. all know what it's like to have love, to lose love, to fight for love, friendship, camaraderie, culture, 
society. I mean, we, we all know what those things are and they were really driving into the heart of each one of those things. We weren't dealing with the specifics of the politics of the day. They were simply a backdrop. And so they were really going to the heart of these characters. Well, I would, I would counter a little bit to say, because America very much deals with the politics of the day for the Latinos, well, that's, right? That's true, yeah. Because they're saying, better get rid of your accent. Like, these things are real, and they still exist now. As we're very seeing these so. attacks going since the election, go back home. We see these people publishing all over Facebook and on social media about these notes that are being left on their cars, being yelled at in the streets, being made fun of for their accents, being made fun of for who they, how they look. Uh, so it premieres on Broadway in 1957. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And my understanding is that while it was a hit, it wasn't a huge hit. It didn't win the Tony. I think Music Man won. Music the Man won that year. Yeah. Uh, and, and, okay. And I, I like Music Man. Sure. And it's a it is, that is a perfectly American but musical song for that time. That's what the appetite was. Yes. Yeah. That's what the musical appetite was and the Broadway appetite. And so yeah, West Side Story was the underdog. Yeah. It's everything that makes it so unique and distinct and the reason why we're still talking about it today is also the reason why it, there was some resistance at first. And I think it did run for about 300 performances or so. But yes, that was considered a moderate success at the time. And it was because people weren't sure how to take the, the intensity of it and the complexity of the music. It really started taking off once it started touring. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Once it started going out, there were I think there were two national companies. There was a company in London. So oh. the the familiarity of it. Uh, started to breed the word of mouth, which would be a more traditional marketing campaign now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but that's not really how how it worked back then. So there was um, more of a groundswell of support for the stage play. And then once the movie came out, people already knew what it was. So it didn't feel like, I mean, while it was it was highly groundbreaking for a movie musical, people already knew the story. People already knew the music. Yeah. Um, from from mostly from the tours. Well, and it seems as if it became more of an event at that point. And, and I think maybe society had changed enough that they were more right. willing to to watch this. Uh, and so when they go to make it a movie musical, they bring in Robert Wise, who is a old school an old school director, yeah. who is of course the editor of Citizen Kane. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so right there you got some cred. And if you look at Robert Wise's credits up to that point, he was a working director. Mm-hmm. And are all those movies great movies? No, they're not all great movies. No. He was a go to guy. And everything I understand about Robert Wise is he was a lovely, lovely person to work with. Mm-hmm. That's what everyone says about Robert Wise. He was the classiest guy. even with all of the the drama around Jerome Robbins and I'm sure we'll get into that uh, you'll never hear Robert Wise say a bad thing about Jerome Robbins Hmm. and he was the first person to say when they were nominated for an Oscar make sure to fly Jerome out here and come up on stage with me so they do a thing which is almost never done in Hollywood which we have Mm co-directors it's directed by Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins and and I'm sure I can imagine the meetings of the producers where they say look Jerome's a genius we can't have him directing this film. Yeah, right. We need to get a guy who's a <laughs> solid guy who understands the filmmaking process, who understands budgets and schedules and how to work with people. And so they pair these two up. And it seems like that it was a great pairing in all sorts of ways. And Jerome Robbins, from everything I've heard, is 
passionate and a perfectionist and difficult and emotional. And he drove people. And in the long run, he drove people so hard and he drove the schedule so hard and drove the budget so hard that they had to fire him. Correct. Um, they really had no choice. I mean, they're, that's they, what it sounds like. They were hundreds of thousands of dollars um, over budget. Mm. They were supposed to shoot the prologue in two weeks and it took two months. Oh, no, is that right? No, that's right. That's right. It's yeah. the only, um, the prologue is, and the jet song is the only song in the whole piece that's shot on location. Everything else is on stage. Wow. And so they had flown the whole cast um, to New York to do this. So not only are they, um, you know, over budget on the schedule, but their, their, their travel budget is mm-hmm. like quadrupled now. Um, and when Jerome Robbins um, was eventually let go, he had already staged and rehearsed everything. The dancers were rehearsed. The choreography was set. The problems were coming in is because they would go to shoot it and then he would start changing everything. Right. Mm-hmm. And he did that a lot throughout the prologue and by all accounts made it better because he did. He wanted to take the location they were at and the, the, the way the sun was hitting that day and make sure it's, that it was perfect. He was also doing things that were sort of revolutionary at the time with the cameras, like digging a hole in the ground so that he could have an upward well, vantage point. I'm going to give that to Robert Wise. Yeah. That's, because that's, oh, yeah. From, Conrad that's Citizen Kane. Yeah, that's oh, Citizen okay. Kane. Yeah. Well, the, the advantage that, that Jerome Robbins took with those kind of cameras angles is that um, you can see the feet mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. in the choreography. And I'm sure we'll talk about the choreography as well, but that was a big um, Fred Astaire thing. Absolutely. You know, yeah. he always wanted the, the wider the medium the shot body. and I want the, I want the feet in frame all the time. Yeah. And you get that here, but you still get point of view. Yeah. I think what you lose in, in some of the Gene Kelly Fred Astaire stuff is you don't feel like you really have a point of view. You feel like you're watching a proscenium and a lot of their dance stuff because of that limitation. But by using these low angles and these odd oblique angles, you you're getting the feet, you're getting the full body performance, but you also feel like you're really getting a character. POV. Well, and beautifully, beautifully composed shots. And this is where that collaboration between Robert Wise mm. and Jerome Robbins is, is so palpable, particularly in the prologue is that you have Robert Wise whose training is as an editor. And as an editor myself, editors want more shots. Like that's what we <laughs> want to cover the scene. And, I think Jerome Robbins took that maybe to extremes and kept pushing for more shots and more angles. Um, but the shot composition, let's talk about this prologue a little bit because it's a remarkable piece of filmmaking. It's Be- phenomenal. Because, because the, what's happening in West Side Story is we enter a world that's not real, okay? But we enter it through a window that is real. And that's what's really remarkable is you begin, even you know, in the, uh, as the credits are rolling with this abstract sort of Saul Bass uh, image of Manhattan, mm-hmm. which when you first see it, you don't even know what that is you're looking at. You're listening to the overture and slowly it beca- it changes colors and then eventually you get these overhead shots of New York City. Yeah. Which were never done like that before. Yeah. The straight down overhead shots oh God, of the city were absolutely groundbreaking at the time. And I, I before we even go past the overture, um, there's not an overture in the stage play. Oh, really? It starts. It starts right it starts on the prologue. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. It was so brilliant that they chose to do it for this. That overture tells the whole story. Right. It tells the whole story with the music. You're primed as a viewer before you even see, before you even figure out what the abstract art is, you're primed to be driven by music. Hmm. And 
the music is the subtext for the whole thing. So we're already there. So the music is already leading us. So by the time we get the images, are emotionally we're ready to go. Um, and you get, so you get these overhead New York shots and then we move into, which are, I think you've mentioned before in another podcast, yeah. maybe very similar to sound of music. Yeah. The way sound of music, cause we go into the, which is also Robert Wise, also a musical. When you go into the Alps, you're doing this similar jump cut through scenery mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the jets coming into the into the park. And what they're doing there is introducing the language of dance for the film. Is that first they're just walking, and then you see a small dance move, and then you see a little turn, and then you see a shoulder shrug, and slowly but surely you're introducing to the audience to this is how things exist in this world. look at the choreography the way the sharks are choreographed choreographed versus the jets it's very very specific and mm. um so when we're first seeing the sharks the or the jets rather um that that moment where all this walking and then mm. one the sp- steps back and does a round de jambe, yeah and then the other one t- and, and it's all very lifted they're up mm-hmm. you know they're I think people lose sight of the fact that they are jets up in the sky mm-hmm. and sharks oh, yeah. down I've in the water right. he's and jumping s- my point here oh i'm sorry <laughs> so you can so the whole married couples no we're on the same page i mean this is this is what we're going to run into um but their 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 choreography is very lifted they do a lot of jumps their arms are reaching to the sky all yeah. the time and then you introduce bernardo and the first time we see him dance is with his two cohorts, mm-hmm. and it's low. It's yep, low. Right. It's really scrappy, and it's sharper. They do they do really sharp turns, and their arms pop out. Yeah. And um, they'll do one big batma kick, but it's immediately back to the ground. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's aspirational. What they're trying to get up, but they can't. They got to right. be down here. Never, never went in my brain at all. And That's then when amazing. they start chasing each other, they start mim- mimicking each other in the choreography. Yeah, yeah. You see the shark, uh, the jets start getting low as they're chasing, and you know then all all the shenanigans start happening. <laughs> but it, the story is told in dance. And to your point, Steve, you know when it's on stage. It's figurative up there. It's there's it's theatrical. Yeah, it's theatrical. Yeah. Plays right. are theatrical from the beginning. But when you put it on film. It all of a sudden has a literal place. We are, mm-hmm. we are, you know, at a basketball court. How do we get a bunch of gang members to start dancing ballet and go along with this story? Right. And uh, it's brilliant. It's truly brilliant how it is introduced, you know, snap by snap, really, yeah. and bringing us along into this whistle. world. And the whistle. Yeah, oh, the right. whistle's great. Yeah, and I get upset when I, uh, like I was watching it in the break room at Universal Studios. I put it on. Like we have a TV and I put it on. It was on TCM. And the younger kids were like making fun of, oh, they're gang members. doing. And these are dancers making fun of what they're watching, right? And I'm like, you're all insane. I'm going to kill all of you. Because you don't understand what's happening. You don't understand what you're looking at because you're 20-year-old punks and you don't understand like what is happening here. Yes, they're gang members. Yes, but the dance 
is to it's going to grow because they're here now. They're on top of the world now. As the film progresses, their dance gets hung, hungrier, grittier, dirtier, more grungy. It just becomes more desperate because of what's happening. So you have to start here to get as the film progresses down to the real nitty gritty of the day. And Cool really does that, you know. And so sometimes when I see people that don't appreciate what they're watching, I go insane. My, my mother has a great story about this. Oh, yeah. She saw West Side Story in the theater and um. The, the film uh, when it first opened oh, and wow. she went she grew up in Queens and she was hanging around with a bunch of punks basically at the time <laughs> and they went as well and that opening prologue they started to make fun of the mm. film by the end of the film they were all crying right well because you have to accept it I mean yes. that's the sort of it's like you, you, okay yeah you know what it is weird these guys are doing weird stuff you know <laughs> well, that's weird they uh, they auditioned actor dancers for this forever wow um there were extensive extensive auditions sure. because they were asking these young performers to do something nobody's ever really done which is do highly stylized chore- choreography highly stylized dialogue very mm-hmm. highly stylized but be a hundred percent real yeah and that is not easy to do um so you look at the ch- the silly choreography or the the moments at the top where it's lighter they believe everything they're doing. Yeah. They're, there's no wink. There's no commenting. Mm-hmm. These people are living. Yeah. And it was absolutely crucial to establish that at the top or you don't get the ending. Well, I think that's interesting, too, why you have Russ Tamblin in charge. Because Russ was obviously experienced in doing MGM musical Seven Brides, Seven Brothers, a mm-hmm. number of other things. So you have kind, not necessarily maybe a dance captain, but certainly the right guy to be in charge of these new people coming onto the scene, coming onto film to do yeah. this kind of dance. And he has he is like the crossover between the uh, the musicals of, of back in the 50s to what we're, we're seeing come into in the 60s. Here. He was also really great at establishing the tone and bringing us in. Yeah. You know, he it's also stylized language and he did that just as naturally as he did the dance you know having words like protocality in the film and (laughs) and you know you know it's it's that sort of thing that he had to really sell but like milena said so grounded and so real while he did it we went along yeah well and uh, you know we have our well-educated jews choosing not to in fact invent realistic language like we're going to figure out how these kids really talk they go no we're just going to invent a new language yeah. And we're going to make it up. And that's how, and that is how people talk in this movie, which it's like, well, we're doing Shakespeare. This is the lang- this is the language of reality here. People speak in iambic pentameter. Yeah. You know, this is the reality of the language of these streets. And that's what they and once you accept it, then you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we move on to the story. We've introduced ourselves to the sharks and the jets and we see their conflict. And then we go off to meet Tony. Tony. Meet? Tony. Yeah. We go off to meet Tony, who's the guy who's we said who's the He's the person who's moving on. He's yeah. trying to grow, to grow up. He's <laughs> trying his best. He's working for Doc. Um, and yeah. at, at the same time, we know there's going to be a meeting between the Sharks and the Jets at this dance. And we also meet Maria, who's Natalie Wood, who's the big star. She's the big star mm-hmm. in the movie. And, you know, yes, we have a non-Latina playing this role. But it's okay. Yeah, it's like Eli Wallach. We talked when we did Magnificent Seven. Like Eli Wallach was essentially a honorary Latino, even though he's a New York so Jew. Natalie, Natalie but Natalie, Wood absolutely, because Natalie really conveys that kind of innocence of of 
of a Latino, of a young Latina girl with the wide eyes and everything, just the belief of it. You know, we're a passionate people. We're romantic people. And still smart so she, and sassy and exactly, all of that. All of that. Yeah, and she's so, great. And uh, was it Marnie Nixon who does the Yes. yes. You, she, it's just, it, it's believable that it comes out of her mouth, which is why it took forever for people to realize that it was Marnie who sang. Like people just believed that it was Natalie and she's so, so good at it. So just to give a little more to this, so, so Natalie would uh, did lay down tracks yes. for all the vocals yeah. and then it, for those of you who don't know when you do a mu- movie musical in general people aren't singing live on the set in general no, there are exceptions to this <laughs> yeah uh, Les Miserables uh, Les Miserables Mis- Mis- yeah it's yeah. the most recent one that's the exception there's also a Frank Capra uh, Bing Crosby one where they did it in the, in the 30s but oh wow yeah or 40s but um, it's not very good so you don't need to watch it <laughs> but um, but in general they lay down the tracks and they sing to playback yeah. and so Natalie Wood is singing to her own playback and she thinks that she's going to be the voice that's in the film and was obviously quite upset when they bring in Marnie Nixon who is an amazing soprano who also did uh, The King and I Mm -hmm. dubbed Deborah Carr singing and did My Fair Lady and dubbed Audrey Hepburn she also had the Herculean task of matching right. Natalie Wood's performance, which is the reverse of what you what typically you do. do. Right, right. But the reason they did that is because Natalie Wood had it in her contract that she was going to sing unless, you know, the executives in post just felt she wasn't up to snuff. And was told on set over and over, this is great, it sounds wonderful. So she had uh, no reason to think otherwise. Right. And they, as soon as they wrapped all, you know, picture lock for her, um, they basically told her, sorry, we're going to go with Marnie Nixon. However, I think you don't get Natalie Wood's performance without her doing that. Yeah. It's because the music is so integral to Mm -hmm. the storytelling and you go from dialogue in and out of song and it's got to feel the same. It's got to be so believable. So, um... I think it was smart. The producers did it that way, frankly. For the art, it was yeah, definitely absolutely. the best way. If, if uh, you know, t- for her to think that she was singing, I think brought something else to the performance. Yeah. And yeah. we've actually heard her original tracks, a really? few clips. I, I, yeah, I've, heard, I've heard clips too. Yeah, really? um, and it's not bad. She's not a trained singer. Is this like and, Nicole Kidman and, and Moulin Rouge, uh, that kind of thing? Yeah, or, you, you know yeah. what? Well, if but if not, Natalie, yeah. if they had done it today and yeah. they had the technology today to help sweeten things for her yeah. in post. You probably could have gotten away with it. Maybe, but she certainly she doesn't have, have a high C. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't. Uh, no, yeah. she um, she's just not a trained singer. She doesn't uh, she doesn't have the breath support to do this particular material. Yeah. It's similar to Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm. That's kind of the the same vocal timbre right. and and range. It felt like it had so. So there's a lot of interesting choices made in terms of camera work that you see in this film, and there's because of new technology coming in, that you really don't see again. So the first one is the use of color. So obviously there's a a color scheme within the film. The jets are uh, in these brighter colors or yellows and tans, and the sharks are in purples and blues. Um, And we have these red backgrounds, Mm. and we have, you know, really strong color control and set design. But then they're also using color control in camera. And what I think it is, and I'm not 100% sure, is it looks as if what they're doing is uh, when you shoot a film and you go into post, you look at the film and you go, oh, these shots don't match exactly. And so you do color correction in post. And uh, back in the day, today we use computers to do color correction. But back in the day, what you would do was you would run the uh, 
uh, negative through the chemical bath and you would make a duplicate. You would make a positive out of, out of it. And then you would, as you were doing that, you would shine different colored lights at it in different proportions to do the color correction. And what it looks like they're doing is they're using this for artistic effect. So they're suddenly turning up the red or turning up the blue mm. or turning up the gold because you could see one of the ways you can tell is that the whole image is shifting color simultaneously. So if they were changing lights on the set, you would see the effect of those lights hitting different things at different points, but that's not what's happening. Um, and there's really no other movie or very few other movies I can think of that use this effect so often. And he uses it as we go into their wedding. He uses it in the dance. He uses it at various places. And then he's also using various designs of split diopters, which allow things to go in and out of focus. So we'll have, particularly in Mambo, where uh, Tony and Maria see each other and the world seems to fall away, everything else goes dark and goes out of focus so they can have this private moment. Mm-hmm. And it's really beautiful. That's my favorite one of those. Yeah, it's so effective. It really is. And the choreography for all of that stayed the same. Mm. Interestingly, that moment where Tony sees Maria and everything goes out of focus, the choreography that's still happening is exactly what was on stage. Oh, wow. Um, The dancers start to thin out. People exit stage right, Mm. exit stage left, move upstage so that they are left downstage. It's really interesting. They've done a proscenium staging, but filmed it in a really interesting way using the effects you're talking about. Mm. Yeah. I guess I'll say this. Some of the transitions do feel dated, but the music helps to transcend that. So still today, you you forgive some of those things that uh, feel like, um, you know, something from the 60s because it's uh, the music transcends the whole piece. I I feel the same way. But you know what I think about it is I kind of go like this is what this piece of art is. You know, sometimes people come to you as a writer or a director and they go, why did you make that choice? That choice doesn't make sense. And you're frequently put in the position of defending your choice. And honestly, as an artist, you do have to learn to defend your choice. You do have to. And if you can't defend your choice, then maybe it's not such a good choice. But Hmm. there is a time at which when someone says, why does that character do this? Or why do they dance that way? Or why is that character, that, that color what it is? And the answer is because that's what it is. Because that is this piece of, accept it, don't accept it, it's up to you. And this is West Side Story. West Side Story, they fight by doing, you know, grand jetés. You know, (laughs) in West Side Story, they speak in a way that nobody's ever spoken before. In West Side Story, strangely enough, gang members are color coordinated. In West Side Story, (laughs) things go out of focus. Mm -hmm. People have marriage ceremonies and dress stops. This is what happens in West Side Story. And this is the world you get to enter into. And it's a lovely world, and you should enter into it. And sometimes accept the art for what it is. Don't question it. You'll enjoy it more that way. Mm. Uh, I like that. Let's talk about Rita Moreno and America. Let's do. It's my favorite number in the show. Once an immigrant, always an immigrant. Hey, look, instead of a shampoo, she's been brainwashed. Stop it. She was given a Puerto Rico and now she's queer for Uncle Sam. Oh, no. That's not true. Puerto Rico. My heart's devotion, let it sink back in the ocean. <laughs> always the hurricanes blowing, always the population growing, and the money owing, and the sunlight streaming, and the natives steaming. I like the I know you do. Smoke on your pipe. 
for a smoothie in America. Okay. It's so much fun. It's, it's so good. It's so much fun. It has so much content to it. And her performance is off the charts explosive. It really is. And what's interesting is that in the stage play, America takes place in the dress shop with uh, the three girls. It's a, it's oh. a trio. And um, Anita is bantering with her best friend about this. So um, for the film, they brought it up to the roof, added the guys, and the two points of view became the male-female point of view, which, right. you, which was so smart. And it just expands the whole scope of the song. And the thing, too, like, it's, so, it's always remarkable when there's an amazing change and you look at in in a, in a play coming to a movie in this case, and you look at it and go, how could they possibly have ever done it any other way? Mm -hmm. Because it's not just that having Bernardo adds the sex to it, although that's great, and it's not just that it adds different colors, although that's great, but it's also that Bernardo's a main character mm -hmm. in the show, mm -hmm. where the other girls in the dress shop are not, and that he has a direct. And this song is directly about his conflict with the Jets. So the song takes on and it all these other meanings because you have him and the guys there mm -hmm. that it wouldn't have otherwise and it goes to the point of even the most brilliant artists in the world and these guys making this thing were the most brilliant artists, artists in the world don't come up with every great idea at once mm -hmm. it takes time these things take developing you're going to argue about it and eventually you get to what's looking at it now is obvious and you, you have the the luxury of when you're adapting something they have the luxury of watching their show run for sure. four years before they're right. um, adapting to the screen. So they can see what works and see how it plays to an audience over and over, all over the country, all over the world. Oh, gotcha. So for for America, I think that one of the real successes of that song is, and the whole the number as a whole is that it's, it is aspirational. There's hope, yep. there's verve, um, there's ambition, but at the same time, you're dealing with really specific, real issues. Yep. Uh, but they're still playful with it, and they're still having fun. So we love these people. We're we're in we're in their world, and Rita Moreno is just transcendent in it. She brings everything you could possibly hope for. Um, the the dialogue, the witty comebacks, the sex. Yeah, um, that's one of the biggest things. I mean, it's such an improvement over uh, the the Broadway musical because of the sexual charge. Mm -hmm. right. You're having a a social debate, <clears throat> but it's sexy, and. Damn, so it's sexy. Do. I mean, so we do it. Oh. yeah, it's so, so, it's amazing. You just can't help yourself. <laughs> I'm just saying, we're, just, we're passionate people, man. This is how. But no, but it's because it's the it's it's an issue, and they're exploring both sides of it. Right, fleshing it out. It's not one way or the other. It's not utopian. It's not idealistic. There's this ugly underside to it too, which has always been the ugly underside of America. No matter what immigrant uh, yeah. immigrant race yeah. you are coming from, or immigrant or country you're coming from, the Irish suffer through it, the Italians suffer through it, the Latinos suffer through it. Now we're seeing to a degree the Muslims suffer or people of, of, of uh, uh, Middle East birth suffering through it as they come into this country. It's happening. It constantly happens in this country. And we're a nation of immigrants, but still we, we do this whole thing. Well, they try to come. turn it around, but they, they rib each other by yes. calling immigrant, immigrant. Yes, exactly. And they, they tease each other with the same way that they're being teased. Mm -hmm. So we, we feel such an empathy yes. for them. And they make fun of the they make fun of Puerto Rico, because she says let yeah. it sink back in the ocean, because she knows it's not a great place to come from. It's really tough and terrible, and they at least have like 
something here and and that's the difference i mean that that song is so current today mm-hmm. and my guess is it will always be so yeah because you you know we are a nation of immigrants and that is something we have in common and one of the other things all of us immigrants have in common is resenting the next batch of immigrants <laughs> <laughs> and, quote yep. unquote and that's what's so great about um, uh, America because you have one side celebrating this country and the possibilities and the other side which is the masculine side being very bitter and cynical and you know uh, kind of condescending about it and so this is the struggle that still happens now 30% Latinos voted for Trump that's huge to my to our people because there are people who are mad that these immigrants are coming over from their own proper countries so this stuff still resonates now this division within the Latino community as well and so to see it highlighted in a song so perfectly and so vibrant, such a vibrant song. It's one of the most amazing things about this film, how relevant and how much it yeah. resonates even now. And it is because of that universal theme behind it. Right. Hate breeds hate. And that's really what it comes down to at the end right. of, the, the, of the film. And uh, it's something we should all be aware of in, in this day and age and in the climate, the political climate we're in. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really tough because... I remember when I first saw the film, and probably it was in the 80s at some point, and I watched it and I went, okay, I know we're still struggling with these things today, but we've grown too. That was sort of my mm-hmm. thought in high school. Wasn't that nice? Yeah. And now, <laughs> and now I look at it again and I go, oh shit. Yeah. Maybe we haven't. Have we evolved at all? Yeah. Mm. And, and things have changed. The way we deal with these things have changed. And it was really interesting. One of the things that the film does really well that's very subtle is that there is no question that the what we would call today the institutional bias is against the Puerto Ricans mm-hmm. because you have the police that are clearly saying, and you have the, the, the experience of what we hear about the society that are saying, we don't like you. Right. But they don't do it in such a way that turns the Jets into bad guys. Is that and the Jets do things that are bad, right? Because they're both against the police, right? Is that is that that still manages to be kind to the Jets, which you see like in the mm-hmm. Officer Krupke song? Mm-hmm. Is they still manage to go like, oh, we should have sympathy for these people, even though they are doing terrible things, right. and that's a really complicated line to walk. And you don't see a lot of films capable of doing this. Usually, once you have racism, you go, okay, those guys are the bad guys. Um, And particularly with what we're dealing with today, where we have a very divided country and we have certainly racist things going on. And then we also have a huge portion of the country attacking a huge portion of the country and calling them racist. Mm. We, the subtlety that exists within this film is the subtlety that we need to start to embrace ourselves because this is going to be, there are a lot of gray areas in here and we can't get through them with black and white labels. There's another little tidbit tonight was originally only for the quintet, the Tonight Ensemble. And when One Hand, One Heart was originally the song for the balcony scene. And they decided that it was too somber a song for their love song. And they needed something else. So they said, well, why don't we grab that Tonight motif from the quintet and turn turn it into a song? Mm. And that became the famous balcony scene. began tonight I saw you and the world went away Tonight Tonight There's only you tonight What you are What you do What you say Today All day I had the feeling 
I can only call their wedding, their wedding night. Yeah. And, it, and it's constructed it's so, precious, so beautiful it? because it happens almost accidentally. They're in the dress shop and they start just, They're oh, I'm playing. Gonna, yeah, I'm going to bring you home yeah. to my mom. This is my mom. And they point to a mannequin with a dress and they start improvising with that. And there's a tuxedo and that's dad. And as suddenly she's wearing a bridal veil and he's wearing, and then suddenly we're like, oh, hmm. this is our wedding. And they discover it together. And we go into this beautiful song. Right. It's one of the most it's one of the most charming moments of the whole of the whole movie, mm-hmm. I think. With this ring I thee wed. With this ring I thee wed. Make of our hands one hand. Make of our get to see like i was saying the potential of who they are and who they are together and what it can mean yeah um in the most pure absolutely way um it just the the beauty of that moment just sets up the tragedy at the end to be right. even worse it's to be. well and it's pure yeah. love and very much the way that romeo and juliet is pure love yeah you know but I don't think they have a scene like this in the play with Romeo and Juliet. I mean, they have the, the is you know, hand. You no, know, they're, the, married, but, they're married by the friar. Yeah, but I, this is more to me no, a more oh, powerful scene of their mar- of the marriage of the marriage. And the, what you bring up, Steve, is what I think is the most powerful moment in that it's playful, playful, and then they discover, oh my God, we do feel this way for real. Like the the play strips, like the playfulness strips away, and the reality of their feelings for each other becomes so powerful in that moment so real so that they turn together to the light and 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 accept beautifully staged in that moment it's just uh we are completely on board with this journey when we 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 are playing along with them like you know kids and then when they turn we we all feel if you have ever fallen in love before at a young age you can't watch that scene and, and not feel anything like it's it's just one of those most beautiful moments it's also a testament to uh the two of them as actors because uh 
they didn't really like each other. Um, oh, really? No. Well, so that's that's one of those stories. I think um, <laughs> Natalie Wood was dating uh, Warren Beatty at the time, right? And she wanted him to be Tony. And so she was pissed that he didn't get it. No. They would be polite to each other on set and say good morning and good evening. I think she was, I don't think they necessarily hated each other or anything like that. She was just very aloof. I mean, she was a huge movie star. Yeah, true. Doing this movie with all these unknown (laughs) like dancer kids. Um, So I I think in the, the Hollywood vein of that time, you know, she mm-hmm. was kind of doing her own thing. She but it was a true off, but... testament to their performance mm-hmm. um, in, in that scene and in all of the scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are completely in love with them being in love. Those are some of the most interesting stories because Sophia Loren, happens a lot, yeah. right? Because Sophia Loren and Charlton Heston hated each other in El Cid. In fact, they would never. She, he never looks at her. Never looks at her in the entire film, and she is always in a separate section of, like, she's always in a different area where they're together. Even when they're together, she's always, like, doing something like that. And so it's on purpose because they absolutely hated working with each other. I'm still back on young Warren Beatty as Tony. Yeah, no I was thanks. just still thinking about... Isn't that bizarre to think totally about? changed no the movie. But he's handsome and charismatic yeah, but and romantic and sexy. Street. He ain't street. Robert Wise wanted Elvis street. Presley for the role. What? <laughs> Can you manage? Stop talking. Uh, that, no. <laughs> that would just hurt. <laughs> I mean, it's 61. He's, I mean. That's fair. Ah, you know, that would sell tickets. They wouldn't have dubbed his voice. They dubbed just about everybody else's. <laughs> I didn't realize they dubbed Rita Moreno. That she's dubbed on. Some of it. Uh, on uh, uh, a boy like a boy that. Like that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's that that's kind of tragic to me. Yeah. Um, because mm. as an actress, I mean, she's an incredible singer. She, she she's will an sit- EGOT. Yeah, I know, right? She's our second EGOT, by the way, the podcast. We didn't mention we did Mike Nichols as an oh, EGOT. Oh, that's right. He's an EGOT yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I read something uh, that said she won her EGOTs in the shortest time frame of anybody. Wow. Not a yeah. surprise. Yeah. But, by the way, for but, those of you listening who don't know what an EGOT is, look it up. It's awesome. It's amazing. <laughs> um, I have real mixed feelings about um, a boy like that being dubbed because she, she says herself that she couldn't hit the low notes. Um, the, it's, I think it starts on like an F it it is very, very low. And, and when, and the range of that song is so high. I mean, she's belting probably E's or F's by the end and legit, that is hard to do. Um, and she, she talks about it, that she really in the moment of that song, what that song is and where she is in a place of character, she was growling that song, Mm. you know, just full of rage um, and you see it in her performance. You see it on her face. You see it in her body language. Yeah. But it didn't match the tone of the rest of the piece. Um, and so they did end up dubbing her for for that. And and you can see that there's um, there's a bit of a mismatch. Yeah, the in way the performance her face what doesn't match the sound mm. coming out of her mouth. Mm. Um, Betty Wand did the the vocal for that and. I guess, I mean, it's understandable with Rita. She is an, a wonderful singer. Yeah. So to have someone dub the entire song in one of the most powerful moments in the movie, you probably do miss something there. Mm. If, if you listen to some of the actual audio tracks of them singing, like... Um, uh, like Riff. Riff. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really different. And better, in my opinion. Because I don't love the guy singing riff. No, I, I don't I, either. I, particularly, well, he the, only dubbed the jet song. The rest of it is Russ oh, the rest Hamlin. Is yeah, just it's the jet the song. Opening is, jet song yeah. is the only thing that got dubbed. Because it didn't sound like that guy was great. Right. He sounded a little flat to me. I agree, and I also think it, you know you hear Riff do it, and you know, um, Russ 
uh, West Hamlin. Yeah, <coughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Well, there, so there were certain assumptions back in the day about what you would do, and how, and like my the assumption today is you try to have the real person do it, and you bend over backwards to have it be the real person. That's sort of the assumption we work on today, and that seems like the assumption back then was kind of the opposite. It, it was for sure. I mean, you have somebody like Shirley Jones. Yes, of course she can, <laughs> she can sing her own stuff, mm-hmm. or, or Julie Andrews. Um, right. That was the standard. You know, if you're gonna sing your own stuff, that's who you need. Or, or John Raitt, somebody mm. like that. You know, there wasn't an an appetite or a tolerance for a non-trained singing voice. And it's not that these people are not good singers, and I'm, but you know, Natalie Wood is not trained. And this was a this is a level of music mm-hmm. that is more operatic rather than a popular song right you know so there was a, there's a certain quality that they were really going for that i understand you just right. couldn't get and it was the days before any kind of auto-tune <laughs> right so i think we just have different technological advancements that allow for uh it to be a little more forgiving for people who don't have a great well, voice. Well, this film commanded it, right? You don't see this in the Gene Kelly films and the Fred Astaire films. Like, they're singing their stuff, yeah. right. but they're not. This is not, this is an epic music. This is what you would consider an epic. There's no tritones oh, in the Right. In Overtures a, and <laughs> intermissions are for epics. This is what we see in epics. So this is an epic musical and the only epic musical, I think, ever, in, in my opinion. And so, well, logically. Well, huh? is. You wow. mean the, well, I mean, on screen. I don't mean... Please, I can't even with that one. I, no, I just mean the musical. The musical is the an musical epic. The musical on stage. This, yeah, the yeah, story. Well, I'm talking an about a musical on, on screen. To me, that's an epic, because an epic as a genre of film, you know? Okay, like, I see what like, you're like saying. Like Lawrence of Arabia and Ben-Hur. Sure. This, is an, this belongs in the epic conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. George Chakiris. Yeah. Yes. He's oh. the other standout performance for me and in the show. Another Latino. Another Latino. He's Greek. He's Greek. Does he get the and honor? he's still alive. Does oh, he get the honorary alive? Latino uh, credit? Oh, my God. Of course he does. Bernardo oh, yeah, is so well to He's so good. He's so good. And he's, and he's dark. Like, they didn't shy away from that. They made him dark. And I, and I think it works. Well, made they, him made brown. Him, they made him brown is what I mean. And I like yeah. that. I like that he You're okay with brown that. makeup? Yeah, with that, sure. I have no problem. They did it with Ilya Wallach in Magnificent Seven. They made him brown Mexican. I mean, it's 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 that's what it's more the stereotype Latino. Like this is the thing that people don't talk about enough about this film. They really come close to being stereotypically racist, right? The comments about them all living in a room together. The comments about them shining shoes all that, during America. And that was but a it, delicate balance. They had to change things in order to toe that line exactly and it works at no point is it offensive at no point is it disrespectful at no point is it racist it's conveying what is was the reality of that time and is still now for a lot of mexicans who come into this country have to live together have to do you know they're doing the terrible jobs working three jobs at the same time and they're all living together in because we have that sense of community within us like it's a really big thing Uh, i dated a girl uh recently who was latina we stopped dating but like when we were dating she hated the fact that I consider my friends family. She's like, that's not your family. That's not your blood. And I'm like, no, these are my friends. That's my blood. And she's like, nope, that's not how it is. And her family is her blood. Is right. that's the thing more more valuable than 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 friends? And that is such a foreign concept to me. But for her, that's what it is. And what you see in the film, what they talk about, that that sense of of unity is not from a gang sense. It's from a culture sense. And that's what I see is the difference between the Jets well, and, and the Sharks and, too. And you see that exactly. That was just what I was going to say. You yeah. see that with George Shakiris, and you see. Yeah. That what he is doing far more than what Riff is doing is he is a representative of this community. Yes. You know, in a way that it's not that Riff doesn't care about the Jets. 
But what he's trying to do and what uh, Bernardo is trying to do is really different. And Shakira's from the first shot mm -hmm. where he's in front of that red wall, red wall and hits it with a fist. Yes. You're like, who is this guy? I cannot stop watching he's him. He's so right. regal. Yeah. You know, and yeah. his dancing, his dance technique is just f flawless. Yes. I mean, it, he does have a Gene Kelly quality about him because he while he's doing all these balletic moves, he's exuding strength. Mm -hmm. And to your point about him versus Riff as the, the leaders, you can see Bernardo as he's trying to be an ambassador. Yes. He's trying to lead. He's really, truly trying to be a leader and to lead his people mm -hmm. and to, to protect his family and his people and to really create a better life. Where it seems like Riff is more just a little renegade. Yeah, that's why I think Tony is a correlative uh, rival to Bernardo than Riff. Yeah. Tony, because of his regalness, his age, his look. He's a better looking man than Russ Tamblin. He has a classic leading man look. So it's the count. It's the more, which is why it's funny that he thinks he's going to fight Tony when in fact it's. Uh, well, it's there, there's a funny tidbit about Chakiris. They found him uh, because he was playing Riff in, <laughs> oh, really? in the London production of West Side Story. How great. Wow. Yeah, so during the, the rumble scene, he was actually helping Russ Tamlin. They're like, what, what would I do here? And he's like, oh, you do this move. And he, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, he, that's so cool. It's incredible. I think to me that the big contrast between the Jets and the Sharks and between Riff and Bernardo is that the Jets are young men who are lost. They don't know what their mm. place is. They don't mm -hmm. know who they're supposed yep. to be. Right. They have don't have the right parenting. They aren't. They don't fit into the society, and so they are strutting and trying to find their yes. place and using the jets as to be. This is our place. Yeah. The sharks are young men on a journey to a new country. They know where they are mm -hmm. and they know where they're trying to do. And they're and there they, by choice. Yeah. Yeah. And they're trying to defend their position. The mm -hmm. Jets, there are threats to them, and they must defend. They know exactly why they are defending it. And that gives that contrast between Riff and Bernardo. What Riff is doing, it's not that he's he's taking what he's doing seriously, but what Bernardo's doing is serious well, that's the in a different way. That's between the champion and a, and a hungry challenger, right? They're the, the, the sharks are the hungry challengers. Just like you brought it away at the beginning, Melinda, you talked about their dancing. At the, the Jets are elevated. They're high above because they're in the position of power at that time. The sharks are hungry. Dirt is closer to the ground because that's that's where they are. They're the hungry challenger, and so that's the difference. Riff is more uh, relaxed, kind of. He's been in power for a while, whereas Bernardo is really, like you said, he's trying to lead his people. It's a it's a whole, and they never sing about being coming from broken homes. They sing about coming from a broken country. That's a difference. Well, I think that actually points it out. You know, uh, the Jets have no family, but they have a country. Yes, the Sharks. Have family, but no country. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. That's something to, to just bring up about this score in general. Bernstein does such an amazing job of putting melodies in your head before you arrive at the song. Mm. So at the dance, the cha-cha is Maria. It's the melody of Maria. Mm. And all through this this score, he works with leitmotifs. He, um, he basically, Bernstein owns two intervals so the tritone interval is is an augmented fourth if you imagine well, a C, which he stole from wagner which he stole from wagner but but he brought it into modern current music in such an amazing way uh the tritone is an augmented fourth so if you imagine on a keyboard a c the f sharp is the augmented fourth and marie Right. Is the right. Triton. Mm. And it's also cool. Boy, boy, 
Oh, it's that go. same motif that he uses throughout the whole score. It's it's in the prologue. It's all over the place. And um, he also owns another interval, which is the minor seventh for somewhere. Which there's a place for us. So when you're teaching intervals to kids, could you have a, a composer and a singer on the podcast? <laughs> it works out. When you are teaching intervals to kids, you reference two songs from West Side Story to help them learn those intervals. And something else, Melaine and I, um, you know, we we met in New York on the New York City subway, and uh, we fell in love over the fact that we both love this film more than pretty much anything else. Mm. And then came online these new uh, subway trains. They started replacing all the subway cars about uh, probably 10 years ago. And I kid you not, when the train starts, it's an electrical, it's like a mechanical thing. The train goes... It does. That the, is oh, the wow. noise. Wow. It's a mechanical thing on the train. <laughs> so we're on the platform, it's and every bananas. time we hear a train go by, we're like, ah, oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's Which great. is, I guess, similar to the whistle, too, isn't it? Because the, the whistle, whistle goes, is the tritone. Oh, the whistle is yeah. the tritone. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's fascinating. Well, one of the ones that I noticed, too, is that uh, tonight ends with those sort of unfinished chords. Um, mm. That quintet is so brilliant it's um basically it's it's bimodal there's two Two modes so your left hand is in the key of e and your right hand is in the key of c so there's bitonality it's it's really modal more than completely different keys but the sharks and the jets that's all minor the Jets are gonna have their day tonight. The Jets are gonna have their way tonight. The Puerto Ricans grumble, fair fight. But if they start a rumble, we'll rumble them right. And the tonight, tonight, tonight is all in major, and they're happening at the same time. Yeah. And then right before the end, right at the climax of the song, um, the tonight melody is going over the top. And the guy and the the guys at the bottom they move into a major. We're gonna get our way tonight, and the whole piece opens wide. And they're all singing their final note. Everybody's in major, but then the orchestra comes back in, bump, 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 back in minor again. Just a quick question. Uh, the South Park movie. Have you guys seen the South Park movie? Yes. Yeah, a long that, time ago. That four part is very reminiscent of tonight, right? When they talk about the revolution. I always thought of tonight whenever I saw yeah. that and I was Well, it's very operatic. Yes. It has its roots in opera. Yeah. And um that's another really interesting thing about Leonard Bernstein is that he he had very grand aspirations for himself as a composer. Mm. He wanted to be the great American operatic composer. So he always thought of musicals as being somewhat less than. It's 
popular. Oh, yeah. Like you could either be popular or you could be great and be taken seriously. And so he had a, a, a an interesting relationship with this musical because it was the most popular thing that he wrote. And yet he didn't feel like people really took it seriously in his lifetime. Mm. I mean, in- and he actually really, um, he, he didn't want to call it an opera. No. And whenever anyone said it was operatic, he was he would really take umbrage to that. He called it... Because he didn't think it was good enough to be opera. He mm. didn't think it elevated to the level to be called opera. So he called it a musical comedy tragedy. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> Custodial engineer. Th- yes. This is why to some degree people shouldn't be allowed to talk about their own stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is a great example of why this transcends pretty much every other score out there. Because a five-year-old can sing pretty much every single song mm-hmm. in this show. The, the melodies are soaring and simple, uh, and not to say simplistic. There, there's a lot of complexity to the melody, but they're so easy to grab onto. And then you have this harmonic and rhythmic world underneath it that's unlike anything else. It has so much sophistication, and yet... Um, you can dance to it and, and yeah. you can, and I can't, <laughs> there's not a wasted song. There's, there's not, not a wasted, a wasted song. song. There's not one song that you listen like in just about every Sondheim musical. There's one or two songs. I'm like, uh, but th- there's nothing in here that you cannot listen to. Exactly. Sing along. No, the, all the lyrics to, and follow through as you listen to, we the, had that okay. experience watching it again the other night. Yeah. We're like, can you believe? And it's just another brilliant another melody. One. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's not easy to dance to. Like the mm. the mambo, the dance at the gym, yeah, the great. rumble, um, the the rumble is completely choreographed. Yeah, every second of it, all the pauses, and well, and there's um, like fifty six counts, and yeah, exactly, it's really complicated. And so they for their playback, they had um, they obviously don't have all the orchestra recordings of everything yet. They had an onset pianist. Mm. Forgive me if I'm stealing your thunder on any of this. We were going to talk about it. It's all your thunder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, they had an onset pianist who would play the score for the dancers to dance to, but also she was counting out beats. And for that rumble, a lot of it's not music. It's percussive. Yeah. And so she's banging on the piano, counting the beats, and the dancers are trying to do, not only do this incredibly difficult, violent choreography, but stay on the beat, hit their counts, be in the moment as actors and do it exactly the same every time because they did a million angles mm-hmm. and it's got to cut. And it's, it's even more difficult than just your normal edit, editing because you're cutting to a really strict time signature. Yeah, yeah you, can't, you can't change time at all, which is something you do all the time in editing. And for a lot of this that they're shooting at, particularly for the prologue and for cool, they're on real location. So they're dancing on concrete. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Which is brutal on the body, and, and in in cool where they're underneath that uh, parking garage, parking or whatever garage, it is, yeah. is uh, it's like a hundred and something degrees in there, mm-hmm. and they're doing cool forever, and people are his knees are blowing out, and I know I think Arab uh, had baby, num- John, baby had John pneumonia. had pneumonia and uh, passed out at one point. That's I mean, right. yeah. it is it is brutal, brutal on these people. I mean, the, look, I'll su- celebrate all the great athletes in the world, but people do not celebrate dancers enough. <laughs> Like oh, yeah. what they do is off the charts, right up there with any of the greatest athletes in the world. Yeah. And you watch what these young dancers did is amazing. After they knew they wrapped cool and they weren't going to have to dance anymore, they took their knee pads and burned them outside Jerome Robbins' office. <laughs> um, I, I will say one last thing. Yes. And for me, 
the the because I love the film so damn much. The the only problem I have is that when Bernardo gets killed, there are no seconds or thirds that step up and take center focus, right? Because you have in cool, you have what's his name? He's second in command. Ice. 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 You have Ice do the whole thing with Arab. Arab. Yeah. All you have is Chino. That's all you really have. The other guys that are all on this roof don't get these kind of lines. Don't get these their own separate. Like, what do we do now? Well, who, who leads us yeah. now? We get kind of, well, the Latinos. We get kind of pushed to the background, yeah, true. which is I unfortunate. Thought about for that. Me. Yeah, That's a really it's, good it's, point. As watching it for me, up until Bernardo gets killed, I am so in love with the movie, and I still love the movie. Obviously, to the end because it's one of my favorite films ever. But it bothers me a little bit that we get pushed yeah. to the back of the line because Tony kind of takes center, Maria takes center stage, and Anita takes center, which is okay because women, that's all, you deserve the parts, deserve to have the leads, and no problem. But I have an issue that the guys just get pushed to the background because mm-hmm. it wasn't that, it, you, there should have been, because there's a couple of those dudes when you see in America that are pretty hardcore dudes, and they would have been, and there's definitely a correlative ice. Uh, on the other side, which was yeah. the widow's peak with the curly hair, he is correlative ice, and he could have had a say. So I wonder if they had ever thought to even write something for them as a reaction to what happened. Because why don't they go out? What, what, who coordinates the Tony death? Is it just Chino? Do they all want him dead? How do they figure this out? I think that's the gaping hole in this in the, in the musical that there's not something there about for them. It's a great it's a great point. I mean, one thing I know from a play that I mm. did in college, it's hard to do things perfectly even. Well, of course. It's really hard. But no, the point is really right. So many different ways in the film where we could have easily hated either one of those sides, mm. but there's so right. many smart little moments in it. Even mm-hmm. in the prologue, for instance, there's a moment where the jets first start walking and there's a little girl in the middle of a chalk circle. Yeah. And they don't walk over her. Yep. They walk around her. Right. And the basketball, they steal it, but then they give it back. Mm. And so it does this push and pull with the viewer saying, you're going to hate these people and you're going to like these people. Yeah. And it's just so smart how they established, you know, shaking hands with one of the sharks and then pushing them. Mm-hmm. And the escalation of that, how they introduced it. And throughout the, the film, even with... Officer Krupke is a great way to establish heart that these these kids are coming from broken homes. Yeah. They're trying to find a way forward. Same thing with America for and, and the sharks. Society, and the society's not letting them go forward. Correct. Right. Is that the society is continually to keep them from becoming who they need to become. Right. right. There's that line Doc yells at, at them in his shop and says, why do you guys make this such a terrible world? And he's like, we found it that way, Doc. I yeah. can't remember. No, Action says, we didn't make it, Doc. We didn't make it, Doc. Yeah. Which is a great pushback. It's a great, it's a great line. Yeah. But, but using um, Krupke and America as the two major establishing songs for the two groups does so much. Yeah. There's a lot of differences between the play and the film, which I'm, we may be talking about but uh that was one of the biggest changes that um both david and i agree made the movie so successful because krupke used to be after the rumble yeah so oh that was in the and so was i feel on stage that cool was before that's right i feel pretty was later too wow after the rumble because on stage nothing no musical had ever gone this dark before right they were really concerned that audiences after um riff and bernardo are killed they were afraid the audiences were not going to recover they're not used to seeing that kind of progression so that's why they put those songs there and cool was 
at the top where Krupke is now. Mm. Apparently, Stephen Sondheim had yeah. always lobbied he, for that Sondheim change. Sondheim always hated it, yeah. And so uh, Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins acquiesced, gave it to him, and it makes so much more sense. It's so much more successful on a storytelling yeah. level and a character level as well. Well, and cool but, becomes this whole other thing. Cool is awesome. It's, um, because cool, because you can't have all that. I mean, I've never seen this. I mean, I've mm-hmm. seen the stage play, but never thought about this until watching the movie. After I found that out, is that all of the anger mm-hmm. and intensity and fear and violence that's in Cool yeah. wouldn't exist if you did it before. Play it cool, boy. Real cool. It's really story through dance in such a compelling way. Yeah, and conveying what what is what happens when you're young, when you're angry, when you're trying to bust out and there's no place to go, you know, to see it through a white experience. It's so great to watch this film now in retrospect because you see that now and you see the anger in the in cool that is just about like, I just want to get out. I want to bust. I want to go, you know, and you remember that. And that's why I think what you guys talked about earlier is it's very universal because these are the things you feel. And Steve, to that point, actually somewhere is another example of mm. this being done mm. where... Uh, on the Broadway production, in the Broadway production, somewhere is sung by a random girl, and instead, in the film, we have our two romantic leads singing the song to each other. Um, you know, as a way of of looking forward after such a death uh, on both of their sides. And it, in in the stage play, it's somewhere is actually an entire ballet that happens after the rumble, where wow. it's our chance uh, as an audience to take in what has happened and the weight and um the more emotional side rather than the violent side of of what has happened and uh, there wasn't really a great way to translate that onto film but it also it's about centralizing your character centralizing right. the emotional mm-hmm. uh through line for the piece and by having them sing that song it becomes so much more powerful What's great, though, about giving somewhere to them, too, is the way it comes back at the end of the movie, where she sings it to him as a final goodbye. It's so much more powerful because now she's talking about being together, possibly in heaven or possibly, you know, in another after they've both passed on. You know, well, and that so and that song is so unresolved. Yes. Yeah. When you yeah. hear it, that it leaves you with this haunting sort of sound at mm-hmm. the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what what chord we're in there, but it's it's something very like it sticks with you. Yeah. Uh, and doesn't resolve, of course, at the end of the film. Right. Until the credits, I think. In the credits, we finally get something that makes it go, okay, this is a little bit okay. And Tony is what happens after. 
What happens when you grow up? What happens when you have to actually take a job and you can't be running the streets anymore? You have to actually provide, be a good partner. You know, if you're going to find someone to marry, those kinds of things. You know, you can't hang well, out on the street corner anymore. He's ready to become an adult. Yes. Which is what we hope all of these guys will do right. is to become like Tony, except I got real problems with Tony. I mean, what? <laughs> oh, well, <let's laughs> I mean, talk about that, Steve. We'll get in. We'll get in. We'll get there. Yeah. I, I want to ask you what, this, what your Tony issue is. Now that we've talked about Tony, tell me what your Tony, your issue with Tony. Uh, here's what I'll say. Because we can't just laud the film. I like these conversations where we kind of have a little difference of opinion. Say. Tell me. So my reaction to West Side Story is very much my reaction to Romeo and Juliet, which is that it makes me angry. Ooh. I get angry, and I'm particularly angry at Romeo and Tony hmm. because they fuck it up. Because <laughs> but it's that's the, leave it to the guys. I understand. We don't have a great story. movie without Tony fucking it up. I didn't say it's not a great movie. Okay, I do think it's a great movie, but they make me angry hmm. because Tony does this amazing thing, which is that he actually stops the rumble. So we we have agreed that the Jets and the Sharks are going to fight. We meet at Doc's Candy Shop. They're having a war council, which, by the way, is an actual thing that really happened mm-hmm. in gangs of that time. They would have a war council, and they're agreeing on weapons, and it's escalating. It's, it's going to be fists. No, it's going to be rubber hoses. No, it's going to yeah. be pipes. No, it's going to be knives, guns. Sticks, knives, guns. And then Tony comes in, and he says, no, we're going to have your best fighter, our best fighter, fists, that's it. And they agree. Mm-hmm. And that is that is heroic. That is an amazing thing. But he's influenced by Maria to do that, right? right? His love of Maria, or but but, but love at first sight of Maria is think, what influences. Yeah. Well, me. and I think in falling in love with Maria, his hatred for the sharks has disappeared, right? You know, and then he goes back to Maria, and Maria says, "No, no, you have to stop the whole thing entirely." So now I'm a little angry at Maria, <laughs> and then Tony goes off to do this thing that is impo- now impossible. He already was a hero, and then he shows up. And he interferes with a knife fight, mm-hmm. causing Riff to die, his best friend. Right. And both Riff's death and Mercutio's death in Romeo and Juliet pisses me off. Wow. Oh, yeah, because Mercutio is my favorite character in Romeo and Juliet. Riff maybe is not my favorite character in um, West Side Story because it's Anita. Right. But I'm like, this tragedy is your fault because you are dumb and young and stupid. And then he kills Bernardo. Just as Romeo kills Tybalt. Right. So now you have added to your stupidity with murder. And so, yes, no, I am angry at Tony. <laughs> I am angry at the two of them. They make foolish choices that I'm angry at Maria because Maria says Anita to the candy store. Have you ever been in a high-pressure situation? You're yeah. not always thinking straight sometimes. So? so he went down there and that's it, just try to stop it happening. He got pushed. He got pushed. He is a former gang member. That trigger got, you know, the flip, the switch I see, got flipped. I understand what and happened. And so he did what he did. Uh, and he... But I don't. I don't agree with you at all. I think he. I think he's going from pure from pure places. He just gets caught up because these people won't let him go, and he's not strong enough yet because he's not fully out of the life yet, and he has love for uh, for Riff and all that for their relationship. They're essentially brothers, and so when he, Riff, when all that happens with Riff, he loses it as I, as he would, as anybody would, I would imagine. Your description of the character is absolutely correct. I agree with everything you said. <laughs> The character makes perfect sense. That is why he does what he does. He's a good man. Well, but this is why we have bad things happen in the world. Because people make (laughs) foolish choices because they're too emotionally involved in their moment. Uh. Is that the reality is, and the reality is with Romeo and Juliet, that they are stupid. The reason that they die is because they're dumb. Mercutio's a fool. I don't think, I don't think, uh, 
Yeah, I think Mercutio is a fool, and I think that's why he died. He's a blowhard fool, and I think that there's a difference Mercutio here. Mercutio is doing fine till Romeo comes along and gets in the way. <laughs> no, but Riff is different than Mercutio, <laughs> wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. Mercutio right? is much cooler than Riff. What? No! You're insane. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Okay. I now want to go through every Greek tragedy with you and have you explain to me why you are mad at the characters. <laughs> why aren't you mad at Kane? Aren't you mad at Kane through the whole film? He messes that whole he messes his whole fucking life up. Well, sure. Oh, are you mad at him at the level that no, you are no. at Tony? Because because they're more complicated. They're different characters. Look, the, I, I think the thing to me is maybe I'm just distrustful of young love. I mean, maybe Ooh. that's what we get to. Yikes. Is that is that? Look, everybody fell in love in high school, and every maybe not everybody. Many people fall in love in high school, and many people think that's it. Mm-hmm. And you look at that person, and you go, "This is it. This is going to be it for life." And you know what? It's fucking not. Well, no. And co- most of us, most <laughs> of us, do not cause people to die, Steve. Because of our, come over here and lay down on this couch. <laughs> Let's talk this through. That's the beauty, but that's the beauty of young love. It feels cataclysmic. It feels like world ending. Right. But when you're, you're in still the middle, discovering, when it. you're in the center of gang violence, maybe yeah. you should just keep it on the down low for like an hour. Have you ever lived in a poverty place? Like it's it's tough. That's a tough situation. They try to keep it on the down low. They're trying they to do. sneak away. They are. And uh, and it's when uh, Maria gets detained by the cop that Anita. She asks Anita to go. Yeah, that's brutal. Uh, it's 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 one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the whole movie, and you you have another moment where yeah. it could have all been fine, right? Yeah. If if they had if the the Jets had just listened mm-hmm. and taken the message, and but they're in that heated moment right. too. They're in the they're in the same place Tony was yep. when he killed Bernardo. <laughs> That's the sign of a great tragedy. Yeah. Oh, How yeah. many times can you say, if only this? Yeah. If only this had happened instead of that. The more t- of those that you can add to your story, the better the story is. Yeah, and this a, has a ton of those. Yeah, unbelievable yeah. and organic. That's right. Well, exactly. And, and what's what we see there with what you brought me is essentially a rape in a musical. It's essentially a rape. That's oh, right. Yeah. Her, oh, her look. Like, yeah. When she turns around and she retains, she regains her womanhood and says, don't you Touch me. That's so powerful. And, and Rita Moreno is so, well, so amazing is, in this film. She is the, the all-out star yeah. in the film for and me. And Latina, damn it. She yeah. is. And she's considered also the most... Anita's considered the most successful character by the book writer. Mm. Um, mm. Who said... What it was his quote? It was something like, um, she's by far the most successful character because she shows up, kicks ass, and leaves. <laughs> right. <laughs> he didn't say kicks ass, but that's well, basically what he meant. And yeah. her going to, see, to Doc's store... Is this heroic moment because yeah. literally the man she loves has been killed by the wo- man that Maria loves, and Maria has asked her to go to enemy territory to save the man who killed the man you love, mm. and she does it. That is more heroic than anything else in the film. Which is her duet, yeah. the, the, oh, yeah. a boy like that, and yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a love. All right, now you know, and you still don't know. He is one of them! No, Anita. Yes! A boy like that would kill your brother. Forget that boy and find another. One of your own kind. Stick to your own kind. A boy like that will give you sorrow. You'll meet another boy tomorrow. One of your own kind. Stick to your own kind. Like it's one of my god, I'm crying just thinking about it. It's one of the most gorgeous 
duets Mm -hmm. written. And it does something that a lot of duets in musical theater don't do. It's a conflict song. Right. You hear a lot of duets that are love songs or people singing all about the same thing. And, you know, now you take a verse, now I take a verse. These are, this duet is two cataclysmically opposed points of view. And through the song is when the two women find the common ground of love and loss and hope for the future. When love comes so strong, there is no right or wrong. Your love is your love. That Anita gets the confidence to go to the store, even though she knows she's walking into the lion's den. And, and then what she walks into is, by far, I think, the darkest moment in the play or in the movie. Even though we've seen, you know, two deaths. But the, two, the end. The end is probably the darkest. But yes, this is... Because this is, this is the destruction of innocence. The end is the destruction of innocence. I don't know. That, that, that kind of gang rape scene is really... No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Shocking. Really it's, it's shocking. You're right. It's shocking. But, but it's, she understands this. The moment. highest moment of hate... Yeah, I think. But this is a possibility in that life because she is the wife of a gang member. This is a possibility. This is the fact that you could be touched by this violence is possible. Uh, Maria's destruction of her innocence is, I think, the darkest moment because she is our hero, heroine, and she is, by the end, destroyed because she says, now I have hate. Yeah, which is very difficult. That's a, that's an emotional moment, yeah. man. It's so powerful. Well, and sure. and you, the music you... is doing so much of the work for you. Yeah. even even in the attempted rape scene, they did something brilliantly, which was to choreograph it. Yeah. But how do you? It's not going to be a song, right? <laughs> right. Um, they brilliantly put America on the jukebox. So when she walks in, the jukebox is playing America. So that tips us into the musicality of the moment. It gets us into the dance. Obviously, the music escalates from there, but it's organic. And that's another reason why it's so scary. We're not comforted by the fact that we have a musical score and that we're in a song and like, oh, this is Haydn. This is a song. No, it feels real. Yeah. Well, and in a way, the choreography, you know, choreography is symbolic. It just as the the choreography of fight scenes is symbolic of actual violence. Right. The choreography of the rape, it's symbolic of actual rape. Like there's part of me that goes, Oh no, she was raped. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's not just that she was almost raped. Um, and the, and it's funny too, because you bring up America is that in a weird way, the other parallel piece of music in that scene to me is Krupke Mm. because Krupke is the scene in which we have sympathy for these guys and we go, Oh, it's not their fault. It's society's yeah. fault. Yeah. What were they supposed to do? And then you see this scene where those same funny, acrobatic, playful kids are raping, gang raping someone mm-hmm. in the way of war, of, of that's who they've become. And all of that, oh, it's not their fault, goes out the window because these are the real people committing a real crime. And it is so, and, and you're with Doc. When Doc walks in, it is just horrible. Yeah. Hey, they're deprived on account. They're depraved. <laughs> By the way, I literally wrote down that line in in my notes. <laughs> Sondheim wrote that line, right? Oh yeah, yeah. That's a Sondheim line. But do you think the conflict one is 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 that that duet that they have that you mentioned is this uh, foreshadowing what Sondheim is going to do 
many, many times in a number of his musicals going forward. You see that in, you definitely see it in Sweeney with Mrs. Lovett. And, yeah, and yeah. Sweeney, well, yeah. The, this this musical introduced a, a whole other level of um, of the potential of musical theater and movie musicals in general. Yeah. And Sondheim ran with it. You know, this right. this was really the kernels of what he later went on to do, which is to have um, story and character drive music yeah. um, rather than the more Richard Rogers, Oscar Hammerstein approach was to have the music driving the lyric or uh, yeah. advancing the character. So, so yeah, it, it really was his, um, his learning ground yeah. for doing just that. Yeah. I think that Sondheim uh, felt that Bernstein was one of his greatest teachers and in this moment in time where they were developing this together, uh, they sat down at the piano together and wrote Something's Coming. They, you know, Sondheim was right wow. next to Bernstein mm -hmm. and actually a lot of his musical influences in that as well. He was just such a gifted composer on top of being a great lyricist. He could actually sit down and play it for Bernstein and Bernstein would think, okay, let's take it here. Let's take it there. So the collaboration, the amount of talent among the two of them yeah. was just extraordinary. So something's coming, I think was one of the final songs they actually wrote. Oh, wow. Um, they were already in previews or maybe they were still in rehearsal, but it came pretty late in the process. Mm. Um, they did alter some of the lyrics coming from stage to screen uh, for a couple of reasons, you know, some because they brought in the guys, but also for clearance mm. there, there were a lot of edgy lyrics that they mm. were trying to put through. Some came from the stage play, some they were wanting to use in the film and they couldn't get it cleared by the studio. Sondheim wanted this to be the first musical ever to have the F bomb in it. And so G officer Krupp gay. F you right, right. is what he wanted, but instead it was crup you. But in, in the, in the film, even some of the dialogue, um, it was supposed to be, uh, sperm to worm is, is how it's um. said in, in the, in the musical yeah. in the Broadway show, but oh. instead it was birth to earth. There was actually supposed to be a final song for Maria. Oh, wow. Um, her whole final speech was actually uh, considered dummy lyrics that Arthur Lawrence wrote for them to adapt into, you know, a, a lyric and a song. He, he expected Leonard Bernstein to musicalize that moment hmm. that was in the in the game plan. And Leonard could never find it. And it's because he's brilliant, because it's actually something you learn is um, when you're spotting for songs, it's sometimes more powerful to not have yeah. a song and to let it just stand on its own as a scene. How many bullets are left, Chino? Enough for you and you. All of you. You all killed him and my brother and Riff. Not with bullets and guns. With hate. Well, I can kill too. Because now I have hate. How many can I kill, Chino? How many? And still have one bullet left for me. It kind of takes us back into the real world. If it was another song, right. another number at the end, we're still in musical land. But the grounded elements of that story really resonate all the more because there's no singing. It's much like the top of the, the potential rape scene where they don't give you the comfort of music yeah. there. 
that's this right. is one of those moments where like no this this shit's real well sorry guys <laughs> and you, and yeah and you juxtapose that with the ending of america america is a vibrant so it ends with it oh you know it's like exciting even though we're talking about this really difficult uh existence in this country for them west sides the ending is a downer which does not happen in musicals it does not happen and to see that ending that way was so powerful and groundbreaking. Even Sweeney Todd ends on a little because everyone gets their comeuppance. Whereas in this, it is very much unresolved, very much like the tragedy, obviously, of Shakespeare. But it's still ballsy to do that for a musical in the 60s when the, the country may not have been ready for something like that. And I think you're, you're, you brought this up earlier. The fact that Maria lives makes it all the more heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, she was originally supposed to die. Right. And people thought uh, on the team, maybe that was too dark, but it actually is darker than I, she I th- lives. I think so too. Because who knows what she ends up as. She probably never, she probably just ends up with this incredible hole in her heart for the rest of her life. Yeah, because Romeo and Juliet is all wrapped up in a bow at the mm-hmm. end. It's a dark black <laughs> bow covered in cobwebs, but it's still wrapped up in a bow. Whereas yeah. this is unfinished in mm-hmm. a sense, because she has this life that she's going to go off to. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because... You know, we know how Romeo and Juliet ends. Most people, I think, seen West Side Story know this isn't going to go well. They probably know it's based on Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. And certainly, as you see it again and again, there's people think that we see things to be surprised and that we see things to see the unexpected. But in fact, we watch things over and over and over again because we there's something that draws us into the inevitable tragedy in a way. And... As you draw close to the end, you know Tony's going to die. You know Gino, mm-hmm. Gino's out there with the Gino's gun. Gino's got that damn gun. He's got the gun. He, Tony was calling, Gino, come kill me, come kill me. Yeah. After, by the way, Anita's betrayal, which is horrific. I mean, it's, it's what she just went through, something horrific, and now she does something terrible. And it's completely understandable, mm-hmm. totally motivatable, and that he's calling to be killed, and he's running to Maria. And whether you've seen it once mm-hmm. or no times or a thousand times, you're like, here it comes. Well, and that's the, the inevitability is something that we are drawn to in mm-hmm. this strange way. The greatest tragedies are surprising but inevitable. Yeah. And that's the great combination that it gives you. And that's what's so great about their relationship, right? That's what's so, because it's so realistic throughout the whole film. Like just, you just buy it. These two actors, uh, uh, Bamer, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Natalie have just this connection, right? And he never did anything co- close to this ever again as an actor, but there was something so powerful in their connection. And cause he's older, she's younger. There's this innocence. She brings him back to this innocence. She gives him hope of what that he'd been looking for since the beginning of the movie. When he's like, something's out there. I don't know where it is. But when he's singing all that, she is that something. And then their future becomes that something after one hand, one heart, which is one of the most beautiful songs ever written and yeah. pure about love and then eventually what goes on in their mistakes, their tragic mistakes, then Anita betrayal. And so the ending when it happens is so much more poignant because he does stay alive to say some final words to her. And then she sings to him and it's Chino. There's so much potential yes. in them. You right. know, right. the the potential of their relationship is transcendent for not only them, but maybe for their cultures too, if, if they could have worked it out. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I think the fact that Maria lives at the end uh, just makes this an even better allegory as to why we are still here today, still dealing with this Mm -hmm. because people do live on. Everybody doesn't die. People do live on. And what do you do after this moment? And we we see firsthand that destruction of innocence and we go, yep, 
that's why we're still here wrestling yeah. with all the same crap. Yeah. Well, and as dark as the end of the film is, there is one moment we haven't talked about that is hopeful. And to me, it's an amazing moment. It's very small, which is, it's the pallbearer moment, which is mm. that the jets go to pick oh, up Tony. Oh, God, mm-hmm. it's heartbreaking moment. And they can't, yeah. and there are three jets that come up, and it's so beautifully constructed. Yeah. And they start to lift him, and they struggle a little, and the sharks come and help. Right. And there's this moment of conflict, and then there's this moment of acceptance. Yeah. And the sharks and the jets carry Tony's body out together. That's hopeful. And they go back to the God's eye view. Yeah. And she, but she walks alone now with the black skull. So she yeah. is the collateral damage that is yeah. unfortunate for the possibility of a new dawn, a, a new peace between the gangs. But I don't think, I think, I think some of the jets and some of the sharks are not going to fight again. Right. Yes. Okay. I don't know that all of the jets and all the sharks right. are going to fight. Which is again. always, which is true. But constantly. some of them might learn a lesson. Right. right. You know, that's the hope you walk away with. West Side Story, it it has brilliant music, it's brilliant story, it's brilliant writing, it's brilliant choreography. Together, they all transcend all those individual genres. They they have come together in such a beautifully cohesive and expressive way that you can't help but be drawn in. Mm-hmm. And if you just sit and listen to that overture before you even see anything stylized you're in and um all the elements are working at such a high level that there's so much to learn and i could watch it a million times and just keep learning what she said uh i would say you know it's it's worthwhile watching this film it's also worthwhile sitting down and just listening to the score just listen to these songs and it takes you to a, a different world um like really no other musical can what do you think john it's at at the same time a classic movie from its time period and at the same time timeless. Like I think that's what's so amazing about the film. It does such a great job of walking the line of two different things constantly the same the whole time as you're watching it. And I no longer consider it just a musical. Like it's it's an epic film. And if you have not seen it or haven't seen it for a long time, after you listen to us talk about it, go back and revisit it with the amazing information that you've heard today from our two guests and see what you didn't see before and pick up and appreciate it even more. And that's what's so great about this film is it's like any classic good film. You appreciate it every time differently when you watch it. Every single time you watch it, you get something different out of it. And I think that's what's so amazing about it. And it's heartbreaking and moving and everything you could possibly want. And if you go on the journey, the reward is so worth it, no matter how painful it is. There, there's so many things to see in this film. You listen to, as you say, with the overture, that music before and still today, there is nothing like it. And then you see the beautiful cinematography and you move into the city in a way that you've never seen it before. And then you see the dance and it's a style of dance that you've never seen before. And you see these young performers and you can see in songs like America and songs like Cool, the 
power and the energy and the pain and the passion that they're putting into it. And you've never seen anything like that before. And then you listen to the lyrics and the words and the humor Mm -hmm. and the complexity and the emotion that comes through those lyrics. And that's nothing you've seen before. And all of those things, which any one of them would be enough to make a great film, they come together towards this bigger purpose, which is to tell this story, which as we're all reacting to today, that story hits just as hard today as it did in 1961. And so, you know, this is a movie that you do need to keep watching. Hmm. I'm not just saying you should watch it. I'm saying you need to watch it. And we have to keep watching it because it's a movie which beyond all that beautiful artistry that goes into it, tells us something about ourselves and our world that we have to keep reminding ourselves of. Mm -hmm. That the conflicts that are coming, they're inside of us. And that we are responsible for figuring out how to solve them. And if we don't, we get to the end of West Side Story. And that seems to be happening over and over again until we say stop. Okay. That was a great. That was great. Yeah. Thank you, guys. This was so much fun to be yeah. here. So much fun to be with you today. Thank you for having well, us on. Well, it was really a pleasure having yeah. you. Uh, David, Milena, if people wanted to reach you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm at Milena Govich on all the socials. That's M-I-L-E-N-A-G-O-V-I-C-H. I'm at David Cornu, D-A-V-I-D-C-O-R-N-U-E. It's nice to have unusual names. You just get to have your name. Uh, John, where can they reach you? You guys can always find me at The Roca Says, R-O-C-H-A. You see all the shows I'm hosting, co-hosting, uh, like this one and all the shows I'm a guest on. So all sorts of great stuff to find John on. As always, we want to hear your comments on uh, West Side Story or any of the movies we talk about. We want to hear your suggestions of other films you'd like us to do. You can always reach us on Facebook at The Cinephiles. That's C-I-N-E dash F-I-L-E-S. You can reach me on Twitter at S.R. Morris. Of course, we want you to review us on iTunes. We've gotten amazing reviews from you so far. We want more of them because we are greedy like that. And uh, I want to, again, thank uh, David Cornu and Melania. Kovich for coming on to talk about West Side Story. I don't know about you, but I learned so much. Oh, so much. I'm going yeah. back and watching it this afternoon again. Wow. Um, and I hope you watch it too. And that's it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles. <laughs>